you're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hello, this is DG Chichester, and you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Daredevil, episode 19, Root of Evil, covering a period of Daredevil from 1994 to 1995. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I am your Daredevil co-host, Adam Chapman. (laughs) Adam, what issues are we talking about today? So today we're going, as you said, way back to 1994, and we're taking a look at Daredevil 333 to 344 and the miniseries Elektra, Root of Evil. That is an interesting period of Daredevil. It's one that's not widely talked about. I'm sure that we will be the only podcast out there that'll be talking about these particular issues anytime soon. Yeah, this this comes right hot off the heels of our last episode. We talked about Fall from Grace. If you haven't mm-hmm. if you haven't uh, listened to that episode, then maybe you'll want to do that. There's a lot of fallout from those issues in this book here, and then kind of starting a new period. Um, Adam, what can you tell us about this particular period of Daredevil in general? Uh, this is kind of the dark days for Daredevil. Um, you know, D- Chichester, uh, who starts off writing this uh, particular volume, had really been on a hot streak when he first came on Daredevil. Uh, he did an amazing storyline called Last Rites, which uh, culminated in Daredevil 300, and which kind of ended the story that, of Dare- that started with Born Again. It kind of put a nice capstone on that whole era of Daredevil. And then it was kind of new territory, or at least potentially new territory. Um, in the last episode, we kind of chronicled the uh, return of Elektra and the descent of Daredevil kind of killing off the Matt Murdock persona um, and getting a, a kind of an edgy new costume. This is when old comics went edgy in the early 90s. And, you know, Chichester kind of leaned into that. He was joined by uh, Scott McDaniel in art, who was definitely an edgy artist, had a very different style that people weren't used to yet, which was very exciting at the time. Uh, uh, Fall from Grace was a hugely successful, you know, six issues storyline, followed up by the not as successful uh, Tree of Knowledge. And then you go into this era and you have... Um, an increasingly disconnected character where the classic kind of Daredevil characters of Foggy Nelson, Karen Page, they show up in drips and drabs, but they're not really part of the ongoing narrative anymore. And it's more just on Matt Murdock, but really not Matt Murdock anymore. He's going by Jack Batlam. And it's not really held together that well. I would actually say that the following volume at least is a little bit more about potential mental illness and becomes a little bit more interesting. But here, we don't really have that yet. We just have this dark and murky period. That's very true. And I think the thing that's missing the most is that supporting cast. Daredevil does tend to be a loner, but he always has those people that he talks to that he can bounce ideas off of, that he can bounce his own emotions off of. And really, he is all on his own in this book. And yeah, like you said, Karen, she has her own storyline, but it's not connected at all. Uh, and Foggy, he's got his own storyline. They meet once, but his storyline's not connected at all. It's it's just uh, disjointed, I think is what you said. Yeah, that's very true. Before we get into talking about uh, what people have to say from Facebook and getting into the issues, 
since this is an epic collection podcast, I think we need to address the quality of this epic collection in terms of the production. Now, this is one of the infamous quad books. And if you've never heard of a quad book, so Marvel gets their comics or their graphic novels printed by a bunch of different companies. They outsource this to three or four different companies around America. And and one of them is called Quad Graphics, and they have several different locations across the country. And this particular um, Quad Graphics company that is located in Saratoga Springs doesn't do very good work. And so this book, when it came out, I remember it just, it was lighting up the Marvel Masterworks board because it was like, what the heck is wrong with this book? Did anyone else get a defective copy like mine? And in fact, everybody got a defective copy. It's just, there's just so much wrong with this book. So I have a question to ask you then. Yeah. So I know I went into this remembering, yes, this is one of the quad books. I brought it with me. I was on a vacation for a week on a cruise and I was like, you know what? I didn't really feel like there's a lot of issues with my copy. Like I felt like there was, um, you know, the cover is maybe a little flimsier, but in general, I actually was surprised that I wasn't offended by the quality of the book as I spent time with it over the past week. So I'm curious, what were the most prevalent issues that you had with the book? So if you listen to our Venom episode, we talked about the Venom book because that one was a quad book as well. And there were some serious issues with that one. Now, this the Daredevil mm-hmm. book, this was the first of the quad books to come out. And the most noticeable thing is that the spine wrap is not the right size. Okay. Uh, when Marvel had given the dimensions of the spine, it didn't match what the actual thickness of the paper is going to be. So you can see on the spine where the, the red box at the bottom with D- Daredevil on it, um, it doesn't fully get bleed to the edge of the spine because the dimensions are wrong. And so the, uh, and you can feel the groove of the, like the scoring, like all, all covers of books are scored so that they fold easily over the edge of the book. And you can feel the scoring okay. marks running all the way down the, the the spine because the scoring mark doesn't line up with the actual corner of the book. So that's the biggest thing. Is it a big deal? It's not that big of a deal. It just looks bad on your shelf. Um, that's a purely cosmetic thing. True. Quad, quad is notorious for putting little amounts of glue in their books, and this one certainly doesn't have as much glue holding the, the pages into the spine as normal, uh, like the other Epic Collections. This also isn't the worst offender in terms of the glue that Quad has. Like, we've seen worse with West Coast Avengers Volume 1. Yes. The the cover is... Uh, so, Quad uses a different stock paper than, like, the other printers. So, their covers are flimsy, and there are lots of cases, and I've seen the pictures where the covers are, like, literally curling backwards so that the tip of the edge of the cover is curling all the way back to the spine. Um, my copy didn't do that. Did your copy do that when you read it? No, mine didn't. Mine didn't either. Because I remember when we talked about Amazing Spider-Man Venom, yeah, like I had a lot of issues with that cover and it was just very flimsy and really uh, folded back. But this this one, like that's actually why I was like, oh, what are the issues here? Because it didn't bother me in the same way. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any issues with the glue. Uh, yes, you're absolutely right about the spine. Um, but in terms of actual, like I didn't find no pages were ever falling out i wasn't having the cover you know folding in and i was in a hotter climate than i typically am because usually i'm in toronto ontario which is not super warm uh, most of the time whereas when i was you know i was on a cruise in in the caribbean and it was a much hotter you know um more humid air and it didn't really have any impact on the button surprise so that's why i was curious to ask you about it 
Yeah, so I think that uh, if you're if you're reading this one, that you're probably okay. It would be nice to have a reprint where it have a nice matching, like a nice nicely aligned cover. But true, you know, that's the other thing is that these pages are generally thinner than the regular epic collection stock that they've been using around this time so that that is a little off-putting when this first started but the other printer um lcs communications uh it, they've now switched over to this thinner paper as well so there's not a whole lot of difference there uh in the third mm. issue of the root of evil mini series there are, are like five random glossy pages weird like full gloss pages did you notice oh, that really? yeah I'll play yes them up. you're right yeah. yes i did notice that so that's i don't know how that got in there but it's in every copy so they're uh that those pages must have been printed on a different stock for some reason i don't know it's kind of weird uh, and another minor detail is that in the table of contents this is a marvel fault not a quad graphics fault but the uh the very last issue daredevil uh, it says in the table of contents is Daredevil 378 when it's actually Daredevil 344. Mm. So Can't blame that one on quad. Nope, you can't at all. <laughs> so there we go. I just wanted to kind of get that out of the way because I know a lot of people will be wondering if we'll address that. Uh, whether or not there will be a reprint, I, it's very doubtful that we'll see a reprint of this because... This is not a highly regarded era of Daredevil. So it's not, the first printing is probably not going to sell out like fast, if at all. So if it doesn't sell out, they're not going to make another printing. Um, especially if like, because this is not a very popular period of Daredevil, why is Marvel going to spend a ton of money printing a whole bunch of new stock when they're going to sell some of them and the rest of them will sit in their warehouses and eventually have to be liquidated? It, it just won't make sense for them to do that. And they won't because like no. you said the book is perfectly readable they're not going to pull these off the shelf it's just a, an unfortunate cosmetic issue Let's put that behind us now and move over to Twitter. I have a Twitter poll that I want to share with you. I asked the question, which Daredevil epic collection do you like better? And I said in brackets, for its content, not the quad issues, just so that we're clear on things. <laughs> um, Fall from Grace or Root of Evil? Which one is better, Adam? What do you choose? I mean, I would be shocked if Fall from Grace didn't win. But what is your As personal... As the better book. What is your personal preference? Um... I, I would I would say Fall from Grace. I think it's more readable. Um, although it's interesting, I'm thinking about it. I would say that at times the art is not as easy to follow in Far from Grace and Tree of Knowledge. As much as I like McDaniel's stylized artwork, at times the storytelling can be muddied and confusing. Whereas as much as the a lot of the artwork in Root of Evil was uh, just not to my taste or just just not very great, I at least understood for the most part what was happening in terms of the flow of the story. Uh, but I'd still say Fall from Grace is the superior volume. Okay, well, I'm going to take the opposite end and say that I think I liked Root of Evil really? better than Fall from Grace. And I think that the main reason is, like what you said, Scott McDaniel's art is hard to follow. And Chichester, while uh, he just has an extremely intricate, dense plot that I also found a little hard to follow um, through this book and through Tree, Tree of Evil. Mm. Like, I think we said it in the Fall from Grace episode. It took a lot of work to follow the the storylines and they he made you work to figure out exactly what was going there's a lot of like jumps around time periods and 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 yeah i i think that i just prefer the more linear straightforward storytelling that we got from gregory wright in these first stories and 
even Chichester's last story that, that that's in here. Uh, and we'll talk about that when we get to that. Um, but as, sure. far as, as far as the general public is concerned, 71% of the people voted for Fall from Grace. And so you were correct when you said that it's not a surprise that Fall from Grace will be the winner here. Okay. There we go. I asked people to leave their comments about this volume, and um, they were all kind of the same. So I'm not going to say, I'm not going to read everything. I'm just going to kind of pick and choose here. Uh, let's see. Lucas says, it's not a very good volume, but much better than the previous volume. The monthly issues are depressing overall. Not a fan of the Electra Mini. <laughs> there you go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And Hemi says, this is probably the worst epic collection I have ever read. I didn't have a clue what was going on in the Electra <laughs> miniseries until the middle of the fourth issue. This felt like a shoehorned retcon that didn't mean anything, and I'm not sure it is ever touched on again in later continuity. I thought the worst part of this book was the Root of Evil miniseries. And then I read the story that had all of Daredevil's side characters happening to have been in a diner when the Kingpin was starting out, and that entire story arc was one of the worst stories I've ever read in comics. I would recommend this volume <laughs> to no one. <laughs> <laughs> wow oh wow that's harsh that is harsh and you know what i uh um we'll we'll, we'll get into that in the issues because i don't know if i agree with that entirely the worst stories he's ever read in comics <laughs> but <laughs> yes they yeah not the highlight i feel like sure. he's never read any chuck austin <laughs> so <laughs> oh well okay yeah check out that chuck austin x-men everybody or don't check it out oh yeah oh, st stay away from that James says, I'm glad I'm not the only one who dislikes the Root of Evil miniseries. Incoherent garbage. The artwork was a mess, too. Interesting. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about it, then. Vincent says, literally just finished listening to the first episode on my commute. I'm sure he's referring to Fall from Grace, so thanks, Vincent, for listening to that. And he says, lots of catching up to do. He's discovered this podcast way late. Loves the show. Loves the epic format. And we appreciate your comments, Vincent. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, he says... Possibly the biggest stinker in the epic line to date is this, is this volume, <laughs> but understandable that they wanted to fill this gap. That's true. The epic collection does print everything for good or for worse. Uh, he says this opens up with a Gregory Wright fill-in arc, and then despite what the cover claims, the rest of it isn't quite Chichester. He removed his name from these issues and used the Alan Smithy pseudonym due to editorial mangling. We'll talk about that a little bit later, too. Volume FF Volume 19 will suffer the same fate, or say, sorry, FF Volume 19 will suffer from the same on the latter half of Steve Englehart's run. That mm. volume hasn't been released yet, but it will, yeah. Hard to say which of whether the material would be better off or worse if Chichester had his way. The art doesn't shine either. Grindberg is in his Magnola inspired face, but is but is muddy. 70s and 80s Marvel House style Keith Pollard is quite dated by 1995. She says, though I'll defend Scott McDaniel's art and, and issue number 344 chosen to be the cover for the whole collection really should have been in the following epic as it kicks off the short Demetrius run, getting rid of the armor. He says this is an easy skip with zero reservations. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, it's interesting. Like when we talked about which Daredevil volume to do next and kind of the main options were either to start with Nesente's run 
or kind of uh, continue on from uh, Fall from Grace. And uh, I mean, I guess I was going to gl- glutton for punishment because I'm the one who kind of said, like, let's do Root of Evil. Let's just get that <laughs> Band-Aid written off. Yeah, well, you know what? We can move on from here. And so um, Vincent actually has another last little note in his comment. He says, but anyone who is soiled by this volume should definitely give the next one a try, though. The Carl Kessel and Carrie Nord run is a hidden gem that could only get its proper due in an epic format. That is a good point. Oh, and Sean, Sean is more of the same here. Yikes, by far my least favorite epic. Just a time where no one wanted to write a coherent Daredevil book. The Root of Evil miniseries is one example of why Marvel was going bankrupt. But I think Over the Edge, the Over the Edge crossover was the el- the ultimate bomb. We did Age of Apocalypse. We forced out the crossing. Is there a way to bring Nick Fury, the Hulk, and Punisher, and Daredevil together in a completely insane, silly way? Yes, there is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hearing all these negative comments about the storyline, it kind of want, want, make me want to be a contrarian. I don't know how I could do it, though, but part of me wants to be like, this is the best. Well, it's not the best, but there are some things to like about it, which I'll definitely get into here. Okay, so one more comment. Eric says this is a pretty rough book, pro- production quality aside. Uh, Scott McDaniel's Art and Root of Evil continues to be incomprehensible as ever, but at least it isn't boring like some of the other artists. D.G. Chichester's writing isn't good, but Gregory Wright's writing is pretty boring. I, I like Warren Ellis's issue, but that's it. And he also mm. says that while the cover is really cool, and so is the Old Soldier's issue, this should have been saved for the next book. And I wondered about that. Yeah, I kind of, I do agree with that because it just them- thematically kind of fits better with where they go. And it is, however, the the one comment I will say is that if they wanted to keep all of the armored Daredevil costume in this into in two collections, they've got it. If they bumped this issue over to the next one, then we'd have armored Daredevil in the next volume. So this is yeah, kind of the complete armored Daredevil. For better or for worse, yes. Yeah, that's right. Okay, shall we dig into this, Adam? Are you excited for Root of Evil? Oh, I'm so ready for this. Okay, well, why don't we kick off with Daredevil number 333. This is... Now, this is interesting. The cover calls this storyline Humanity's Fathom, but the inside of it calls it Fathoms of Humanity. That's right. This is Fathoms of Humanity, part one. It's called Help Wanted. The help unwanted. Yeah, or help unwanted. Adam, do you want to kick off and give us a brief recap of this issue, or do you want me to do that? Uh, I can do it. Okay, go for it. So this, uh, yes, we launch a a five-part storyline that's just kind of probably a couple parts too many. Um, It's written by Gregory Wright, artwork by uh, Tom Grunberg and Ray Crissing. I don't think I've ever seen Ray Crissing's name elsewhere. Have you? No, I don't think I have either. It's an unfamiliar name. Yeah, so I think I'm not sure about. So this storyline... Man, Uh, so this issue, you have um, kind of a a man being hassled and Daredevil kind of gets involved with, you know, the homeless people. Um, This this character, and I'm forgetting his name, but who has all these abilities and is able to obey Daredevil. Daredevil goes down into the sewers to go find him, eventually ends up uh, encountering the king from a very classic Frank Miller story, which wasn't great at the time, but you kind of went with it because it was Frank Miller being crazy. 
<laughs> and basically it's it's a version of the kingpin more or less but um you know living underground and being all like diseased and creepy looking um who kind of thrashes daredevil and they have a, a big fight you have all these creepy people living under the sewers it's interesting how many you got the morlocks living under the sewers you got the king and his people living under the sewers uh and the scared of sun folk it's interesting how many kind of underground societies you have on oh, this time i think venom venom at this point was also living underground in san francisco Yes, at least that was San Francisco. At least it wasn't New York City as yeah, well. Right. <laughs> like, it's when they're all in the same place. You have this bombing that happens. And the big question is, you know, who did this bombing? Who was it orchestrated by? Um, Wilson Fisk is still around, which I thought he was out of town at this point. So that kind of, I found uh, kind of confusing at times because I remember in 1996 or 97, which was only a couple years after this, where you had uh, the Kingpin show up in an issue of X-Men. Yeah. And it was like this big deal. At least they had positioned it as such that he was suddenly back and he was like, you know, um, basically working in Spices, but also the underground over, uh, you know, in the eastern side of the world. So seeing him here kind of operating very ground level, I found very like, wait, what? Like it just, that took me out of it and made me confused as to how he eventually got over there. Because I thought he was kind of out of town after after uh, Last right. So I was very surprised to see him working here um yeah. there's not a lot that really happens in this issue though like like they, they start moving around some of these plots but a lot of it's just you know kind of fighting and daredevil kind of being confused half the time the, so let's talk about this king character the king sure so like you said he was in a very mediocre issue of frank miller's daredevil so that makes him the perfect candidate to be brought back right <laughs> to this story here <laughs> Um, it it worked in that Daredevil issue, Frank Miller's Daredevil, because it was a sharp contrast between the kingpin who was the top of high society sitting up in his glass tower contrasted with the kingpin, uh, with the king who is literally in squalor in the, in the sewers. It was, the, mm-hmm. it, they had that contrast. It doesn't make sense to bring him back because the kingpin's now not on top anymore. He's now also down. He's been knocked off of his perch. So you don't have that contrast. It just seems like an out of place character. No, and the original as well is that you had, um, you know, you had this this sharp contrast to Wilson Fisk, who had, you know, uh, I guess kind of drugged out or crazy Vanessa at the time. Yeah, who was kind of by his side, and then Daredevil rescued her and brought her back to Wilson Fisk. So again, you had this interesting contrast: this woman who kind of torn between two different kings. Like there were so many other subtexts, even though the character himself wasn't that interesting. So, but bringing them back and for a, a bunch of different appearances in this storyline is just not that interesting. And seeing these people again, Daredevil doesn't have a supporting cast, so they kind of throw him into this, you know, this the these underground people, which I don't really find myself that caring about them. And, but I have to remember, you have a period where Chichester has walked away to work on Electra, knowing he's coming back. So you have Grimberg just kind of doing, sorry, Wright is just doing a fill-in. So he's not going to really move anything around too much. And he's yeah. just kind of working in something that's very isolated. So it makes sense, but it doesn't make it any better a story. Yeah, it's true. It's I do, however, find that the artwork here is easier to follow than uh, Scott McDaniel. Um we like Tom Absolutely. Tom Grinberg. I actually think he's quite good. He has a nice style. It's he doesn't give in to the extremeness of the '90s that a lot of artists are are doing at this point in Marvel history. 
Uh, his layouts are are fine. His storytelling is clear. And for that, I actually do appreciate this story. And this is one of the reasons why I like this volume better than the previous one. Because while Scott McDaniel is, he is an incredible artist and is fun to look at, his storytelling is not the greatest. And so it's no, nice. It's kind of a breath of fresh air to get back to this uh, this style here. And the inker here. So what was his name? Ray Crissing. Yes, he's a good inker too. And in uh, this splash page, I love this uh, this the the inking that he's done on this face. Anyone who takes the time to draw all of the individual hairs on this guy's stubbly face, <laughs> he gets a <laughs> he gets a plus in my book. He he does a pretty good job. Um, and the other thing I, I agree like, with that, yes. The other thing I like about this issue is the extreme uh, muted palette of the colors. Uh, Daredevil in none of these looks sharp, like vibrant red. It's all this kind of muted maroon, washed out kind of color. All of the, all of the 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 backgrounds and the characters are all shades of blue and green and white, and I think it looks really cool. Uh, it's nice. Interesting. I actually felt completely opposite. Yeah. I thought it looked too washed out, and I, I just I felt like nothing ever really popped off the page for me, and it felt very too subdued. Um, like there's a difference between I guess moody, and I, I didn't feel like it was ever trying to affect a particular mood per se. Like it's not like it was using it in some scenes more than others so that you could accentuate certain ideas. No. Uh, I just felt the whole thing kind of looked blasé. Like you have a scene that's all kind of based on the focal point of an explosion or a fire, and I found like the well the entire all the art in that page is is really. Like, this is a fire? Like, it looks like there's a little bit of something on, on flame, but that's about it. It didn't look like that big. The art, the color art didn't really uh, draw my eye as to, you know, how something was burning. Like, it felt like such a really poorly designed panel. Like, it's supposed to be this big moment that <laughs> reverberates throughout the rest of the, the you know, the storyline. And yet the actual inciting moment looks so underwhelming that you almost forget it even happened. Yeah, well, and the thing to remember, though, is that this, the explosion, it's not an explosion, first of all. It's only the aftermath of an explosion. We don't actually get to see True. the explosion. But I do still feel like the yellow in the, in the fire stands out amongst the rest of the page, because the rest of the page is that drab look. This whole issue takes place at nighttime or underground, which is, I think, mm. why we get the drab look. Did it feel like there could have been more fire though? Like, I, like the color itself. I, I guess you're right. Like the the yellow that they use for the fire is lit up, but it almost felt like it was too small a patch. Like, yeah. Maybe that's being an ultra nitpicker, but again, it's supposed to be you know this serial bombings creating this you know this destruction, and yet it just it looks so small. And I guess yeah. the scale of it I I found bothersome. Which again, it's it's super nitpicky, but because it's 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 referenced forever in this entire storyline, like this big thing that's been happening, I just felt like it should have been given more gravitas there, and it just yeah. it felt underwhelming. I can see that absolutely, and maybe that's just the the fault of the perspective, or however Greinberg decided to choose this. I mean, he left a big open white spot underneath this one mm -hmm. panel that he could have he could have extended his panel down lower and given this one a little bit more space. Um, there's a lot of wasted space with the uh, with the big thick the big thick black smoke as well. So mm -hmm. if he had chosen a different angle, maybe it would have stand it stood out more. But uh, yeah, you're right. It's not as um, flashy as it probably should have been. Seeing that it's the the catalyst for everything that's going on here. But if you flip the page, like go directly to the next page, and you have a battle between the king and Daredevil. Mm -hmm. Now here, here the king is 
all white, so he stands out. But because all of the backgrounds are a muted palette where it's only using a few different tones, the red in Daredevil, I think, pops out. It makes Daredevil stand out. Even though the red isn't the, the brightest red, it's still really the only color in the next several pages. So you can really see where Daredevil is opposed to where everybody else is on the, on the page. Yeah, I'll give you that. I mean, it, it is true. It is it is a little bit more eye-catching because there's such a lack of color, color overall. Yep. Um, so yeah, I guess that's true. And so this, if you... Uh, if you flip forward all the way to like just a random page of the Root of Evil miniseries, like that's uh, it stands. It that that one's so colorful, and I felt like the color, the color theory in that in those issues, didn't draw my eye to certain action as well as the stuff in these earlier issues. Interesting. When we get there, you know, I'll, I'll save my comments, but yeah, okay. no, I, that's an interesting point. Sure. Okay, let's keep on going here to Daredevil number 334. This is part two. Before it's, we do, just one oh, one quick notice that yeah. I really like that they integrated is that as you finish each issue, you do have the Electro, electro Report, um, which they could have kind of put anywhere else in the book. I mean, I know it was in the original issues, uh, kind of teasing the upcoming Electro miniseries, but I like that they kept it this way instead of removing it for flow purposes, um, because this is how you would have experienced it if you're reading the monthly comics. So I like that you were getting kind of snippets of, of what you're going to get in the future. It's an interesting choice because, again, they could have put it anywhere else in the book. It wouldn't have really ruined the flow, um, but they kept it the original publication way. So I appreciated that. Yep, I think that's cool, too. And what it does is it integrates it, the Root of Evil miniseries, into this book even more. Like, it's not just a miniseries that they've stuck in the middle of this book because now you're getting actual comic pages interspersed between issues to lead up to, to what's going to happen here. For sure. And in so, that first one, again, they also mentioned, like, where's Dan? Where's Scott? Like, they kind of say, like, this is where we went. <laughs> in case you're curious as to, you know, why you're reading by a book by a completely different creative team, we've gone somewhere else. So, again, there's, if you don't know that that's what happened back in the day, now you have a way of knowing that. So, again, it's nice to kind of, you don't really usually get a sense of what's going on with editorial or other decisions in any of these epics. Everything is just kind of reading the, you know, the, the content on the page, whereas this actually gives you a bit of a sense of, oh, this is why that happened, uh, which you don't get anywhere else because it was woven into how these books are published. So let me read just a little bit here uh, of Chichester in this article that was printed in the, the electoral report. Uh, we'll hear from Chichester from a, a couple of clips a little later on, but here's a comment from him from this article. It says, It wasn't an easy choice to step away from Daredevil's monthly adventures, but we've got a responsibility to see that Electra moves forward just as breakneck, just as unexpectedly as everything else we've done and continue to do with the rest of Daredevil's universe. And he puts universe in quotes. And uh, mm. I'm going to come back to that why he puts universe in quotes a little bit later uh, when we get to the Root of Evil miniseries. And he also says, um, tired retreads of old routines that don't interest, been there, done that. Uh, More importantly, retelling stories that have already been told just isn't fair to you as a reader. Radical runaway directions present themselves once you get to thinking about them, once you let the characters take over and thunder forward. And believe me, when a lady like Electra wants to take control, you don't argue. So that's just a little <laughs> bit of him talking about um, his feelings moving away from the Daredevil monthly. So you ready to go to 344? Or sorry, 334? Let's do it. Okay, 
Part two of five. This is called Bearing False Witness. And Daredevil, he's trying to help the underground uh, in, a, in a number of ways, but they don't seem to want his help. At the same time, there's a mystery man that we don't quite know yet. He hires this guy named Bushwhacker to kill Daredevil. Bushwhacker is another character from an old issue of Daredevil. This is from the Nascenti run, Daredevil number 249. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's see here. So there are, uh, and really there, there, there's minimal plot in these issues because not a whole lot goes forward. There, that we see the beginning of a storyline where Daredevil kind of checks in on, on, on Foggy to see how he's doing. And I guess his his practice isn't going as well because he's now turning to some not as respectable clientele in order to play the bills. And he's kind of uh, letting himself be morally compromised um, in his practice. So that's unfortunate. But it's nice that Matt kind of is checking up on him. And that's the only way to keep these characters in the story, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple of white pages. Uh, none of the pages in this epic collection are numbered because the art is full bleed, so I can't tell you what exactly what number page it is, but there are these pages that are just full white, except for the first panel that has Daredevil's face is in color, and then the last panel in the following page is also in color. And I feel like this is um, it's kind of maybe trying to emulate what maybe what Daredevil is trying to see. Uh, or not trying to see, but how he mm-hmm. sees. Every artist has a different way of depicting his radar sense. And I feel like just uh, stripping the color away is a way that this person is trying to depict Daredevil in this in this situation here. That, that's interesting. That's not in any way what I got from it. Okay, um, what was your take? Well, because the, they even make a mention that on uh, at the bottom of the page when it first happens. Most are confused by the harsh white light playing against the abyss. I thought it was more supposed to be representative of all the flashlights and everything as they come oh, into the darkness. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're probably right. I think I read this wrong then. Yeah, you're probably right. As soon as everyone busts and, and, in. But I like that idea, too, that like everyone else is kind of blinded by the light, but Daredevil wouldn't care. Um, yeah. Because... He, he can't see, so he's not affected by that suddenly happening. So I thought that was an interesting visual trick, and it definitely makes those pages really pop because you're used to seeing color. Yeah. And so suddenly you're not seeing that, so everything seems much more stark. Um, the blank spaces between the, the, the actual finished artwork, again, it pops more. It doesn't just look like white space. It looks more deliberate than normal. Yeah, I, I think it was a nice effect. It's cool when you, they just make little choices that, that shock you a little bit. Uh, we also see the return of Sinclair. What's her name? Uh, Sinclair Spectrum. Do you remember her? Mm-hmm. I mean, vaguely. Yeah. I, I was like, who is this? <laughs> I know. I had to look her up too because, like, he is like, how does Daredevil know her? She's from the Tree of Knowledge uh, storyline. She's a computer hacker, and it's like, yep. oh boy. So we get her back, and Daredevil, like, Matt's just a jerk to everybody in this book. He's really taking He's his awful. new persona to like to heart, and he doesn't treat anybody with any any sort of nicety at all. Yeah, it's it's just it's so weird because like he's not a nice person. He's just kind of an asshole. He's, you know, he's, he's pretending to be a guy, like a con man, but it basically feels like he just is that guy now. Like, it just doesn't feel like he's a, like, where, where's the Matt we used to know? And I guess that's the harder part about reading a story like storyline like this is that he's as Daredevil, he's going so trying so hard for no one to think that he was the old Daredevil, um, which again, is just him being an asshole, but he's also being an asshole in his regular life as well. Like, it's just, it's so disarming because he's not supposed to be this guy. Who is this person? Yeah. 
and we can chalk it up to just being this storyline and oh eventually he'll get back to the way he is but it's hard to like he's not likable so why am i reading this book when he's just when i don't like him anymore (laughs) i think a lot of people were were turned off by this attitude uh, and the writers i think it was just a misstep to make him so unlikable but again, it was the time, right? I mean, yeah. uh, John Paul Valley's Batman was a bit of an asshole too. So, I mean, you gotta have to, you always have to keep it in context. Yeah. Um, so I, I would, and then you have this ending with Bushwhacker, you know, threatening Daredevil. I, I, I just found it so, I felt very indifferent. I just felt like I didn't ever really feel that invested in, in the characters or what was going on. But then you get like, so you read this issue and then you get the backup, which is again, another uh, Electra teaser. And I found that much more exciting. And I, it's interesting looking at McDaniel's art it feels so inspired, almost too much so, from the Frank Miller Sin City era um, in terms of some of the line work. Like it just felt yeah. like he was almost going too hard to emulate that idea. I think that that's yeah. So the, in one of these other Electro reports, he talks about the change in his style. Like he's intentionally changing what he did in Fall from Grace and changing his style to be a little bit more blocky and stuff. And so yeah, this uh, this the page where Electra is stabbing the guy right through the chest and these they have these huge thick lines emitting out of it kind of like radiating that's a very very kind of a frank miller sin city kind of a feel for sure and just with mm-hmm. the harsh shadows if this was black and white then i think you'd even feel it more yeah yeah that's probably true but yeah in that one we'll it's move on uh, to the next issue well just before we do that um these these two stories with electra that are at the end of the, the couple of issues here, they are Electra saving somebody. Uh, in this one, he, she saves a woman from a mugger, and in the other one, she saves a child hostage. And we had just seen, like, the literal fall from grace of Electra, who had just kind of reabsorbed the, the her bad nature back into herself in fall from grace, mm-hmm. right? And that caused yeah. her to be cast out of the chaste. Like, she wasn't allowed there anymore because she was no longer pure. And so these little notes, these little snippets of her life of trying to save people, but doing it in a way that, you know, she still kills the person. I love the dialogue in this here. Um, In the sudden still of sound is a cacophony, the pop of skin breaking open, the sliding wetness of steel and meat, bone snapping, high-pitched and hollow. (laughs) Like, it's so, it's very graphic storytelling. Um... But it's this mix of like she's doing altruistic work, but in a very kind of uh, immoral way, mm. and she's still fighting the good and the bad. That's that that she is. Uh, that's that's now a part of her, having come back from the dead. So it's uh, yeah. interesting. Yeah, and we'll see how that plays out in Root of Evil. That's right. Yeah. Okay. You want to go on to the next issue? All right. Let's see how quickly I can tell you what happens here. Okay. Uh, Daredevil fights Bushwhacker. They go into the sewers. The king unleashes a, a, a monstrous beast to attack Daredevil. So Daredevil has to fight the monstrous beast, has to attack Bushwhacker, and then out of nowhere we have uh, one of the original Deathlock shows up. That's it. <laughs> yes. Oh, man, Deathlock, Deathlock's appearance was so random. I was like, what the heck? Why is this? And it was the the the, the thing at the end, right? If you Let's skip right to the end of this issue here where he – is in the shadows. See if I can find it because there's no page numbers mm-hmm. here. Um, they they play it out like we're supposed to know who this guy is. I couldn't tell you who yes. this guy was because he's got long hair. He's dressed in rags. He doesn't actually look like Deathlock. And it's like no. To I, be the continued. only time I ever when they said the name Luther Manning, I'm like, okay, I know who that is. 
but they don't say it in this issue either, do they? No. It's, it, I don't think it was in this issue. I think you're right. It might be in the next one. But yeah, he's like slinking around in the back corners and they're really building him up to be somebody important. And of course, yeah, he is a, a known character, but, but the way he's rendered here, I had no idea who he was. So it was very confusing. Um, so <laughs> that was weird. Uh, and his, his storyline has absolutely no purpose. And we'll talk about that in the next issue, uh, which is even more weird why he's in this issue at all. <laughs> Yeah, this, this this entire issue just felt so forgettable because it was just it was just fights, and they weren't great fights. And it was just like it was almost like a, a really bad video game. Like you know, fight this character. Oh, they're gonna attack you. You know, bring you to another character, to another character. Like it was almost as if he was trying to make it this crazy, you know, exciting build up where all these characters ended up converging in one spot. But I never got that. Like there's um there's a great um, storyline not anywhere near Daredevil. It's uh, over in the Flash book from I think 2004 by uh, Jeff Johns and it's called the rogue war. And it's this great storyline where you start off thinking that you're going to get one thing in this rogue war and that every issue has this great climactic ending. And you're like, Whoa, what? And it kind of reframes what you're reading and changes it and enlarges and gets bigger and bigger. So that at the end of each issue, you get this big cliffhanger and like, Oh my God, now what? And it just, you have all these things converging. And then by the end, you're like, well, this is nowhere near where we started, but it's so exciting. I was taken along for this amazing ride and I loved every minute of it. And then you have this trying to do all this in one issue, none of it organic. And you just have character after character just showing up out of nowhere, it feels like. And it's just this weird timing where they happen to all be in the same place at the same time. No characters given adequate space to really make you feel that it even matters that they're there. And again, like a character like this Deathlock, who's I know, given a different name at this point, you don't even care. Like, you don't even know who it is. Yeah, yeah. Like, you, this, <laughs> this, this is not how you build up suspense. And the other thing I was confused or that I didn't like is is I think they I really think they should have made a bigger effort to let us know that the king is not the kingpin. If you were not familiar mm. with that random Frank Miller issue from 15 years earlier, then like or maybe 10 years early, not quite 15, but I think you're right. It was about 15 years, I think, or yeah. maybe 14 years. Like it was not that it was a while ago at this time. And like there's there's no editorial box that says for his story, check out Daredevil, whatever, number 180. And last we've seen a Kingpin, he's gone. So it's like, this could have been the return of the Kingpin for all I knew. He's, but this is where he's at. He's now covered in sores and he's living in the sewer. He even re references Vanessa. Like we know that Vanessa, we know why he's referencing Vanessa, but for anyone who's coming in cold, this could easily have been the Kingpin, but it's not the Kingpin. They just didn't make that clear. No. <laughs> There's a lot that's not clear. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we can move on to... Okay, so there's the Daredevil... Or sorry, the Elector Report in here. And this one is written by Scott McDaniel. It's a little article that he's written here. And I just want to read a little clip from... Uh, an excerpt from this one. Electra Root of Evil is where I plan on really finding myself as an artist. My strength has always been the dynamic style I put into a project, and on that level I can bring an, a raw energy into the story by the nature of how I attack the project. Even though my ideas on art were very graphic when I started on Daredevil, I devoted a lot of time toward line work that was popular in some titles, but that it wasn't my style. And there was no way hmm. to find a balance in that approach. Then all of a sudden, as certain projects began to make it apparent that you didn't need the slick line work, I dropped it. 
because I never needed it to begin with. I just thought I did. With Electra, I'm looking for a middle ground between high contrast and line work. There is a certain balance that can be struck uh, that can make the art more full. This series is wide open visually, allowing me to experiment with different styles. I'm taking that opportunity to branch off and do more abstract things, and that's going to help me grow as an artist, but it's also going to provide a mental anchor to help the reader uh, associate different moods and scenes with different art styles. And he does I think he does accomplish some of what he's set out to do, which I'll point out when we get into the, those issues. Just I thought that is neat to hear his thought process and how he feels his fall from grace art is different from his root of evil art. Mm. Okay, carrying on here to issue number 336, Fathoms of Humanity, Part 4 of 5, Resurrection of Duty. Okay, so basically the there's a face-off at the beginning of this issue with all of the major players and this guy, Joshua, which we haven't mentioned before because he hasn't really been all that important to you, but he's kind of the guy um, who's in charge of these underground people. Apparently, mm. a long time ago, he was a superhero and he now realizes <laughs> that all hiding underground all these years was the wrong thing to do, so he returns. He was a superhero by the name of Peacekeeper and now he's back. <laughs> Yay! Yay! Because that's important. Um, and so, yeah, he he fights Bushwhacker. Bushwhacker can make guns out of his hands, so that's kind of cool. Um, in, a, in in the hands of a superior artist, perhaps. <laughs> uh, I guess he was drawn by Romita Junior in the first uh, when his first appearance, and then a senti mm -hmm. run. Um, but yeah, so he he's also another character that is. Uh, scarred on one side of his face, and we're going to see another character like that later on in this book. Uh, this is still Grinberg doing the artwork, um, but he's got a different inker, Don Hudson. And if you go to a couple pages in, where you get uh, some close-up pages, uh, close-up pictures of Joshua's face, and he's he's just talking, looking kind of sad. I really feel like there's a lot of John Buscema influence in the way he draws his faces, the high cheekbones, the long noses, the, the, just the way he draws his eyebrows or the brow coming over the eyes. It looks very, very John Buscema. In fact, I, it's almost like he's swiping those faces from other pictures because he hasn't been doing that in the past few issues. Mm -hmm. That is interesting. Actually, I just checked. Um, so Hudson had done actually this issue and the two before it. Um, so he'd done a lot of the inking. I guess it was just the first issue that had that different anchor. Oh, okay. I hadn't noticed it up until this point. Yeah, so he's been doing it for a bit. Um, one thing that bugged me, I think the last issue, sorry, the last page of this issue, you have a shot of the Kingpin, I guess, hanging out in squalor, yep. eating some Burger King. I, I don't know why, but it really bugged me. Like, it just... I guess it's just because I'm not used to seeing Wilson Fisk being brought low. That it just feels so incongruous with my mental image of him. And that I just didn't... I don't really care for seeing like i don't know if he had just been sitting there in the darkness i would have been fine there's just something about him eating fast food in this dive place that he is that just doesn't work for me it's such a weird nitpick <laughs> <laughs> but i guess maybe that's supposed to be it's it's doing its job it's supposed to make you feel like th that way about not caring about yeah i guess so 
it's just it's just weird. The whole the whole issue is weird. And again, um, I forgot to mention that uh, Deathlock's name is now Demolisher, which I, again don't remember as at all. Like right, this, yeah. This whole issue just feels so forgettable. Like who cares? And the, I guess the big thing is that you have Daredevil kind of putting together his own squad to kind of be able to find out the truth about these two guys from the underground who were set up for this bomb for these bombings, and so he's trying to defend them. And you know, he's going up against you know forces he's not really sure about but he's getting this hacker to help him like they try to put some care into the different things that are going on but it just feels like a false flat and so much of it hinges on these battles in the sewer which are not extremely well rendered and it doesn't feel like i'm really motivated to care about anyone right and so the these underground people are really distracting from the actual story which i think would be more interesting if daredevil got involved in because these parking garages are being bombed because they're assassinating political leaders and and other underworld figures or sorry political and underworld figures in in the explosions and many innocents are being killed at the same time and that sounds like a great story for daredevil to be involved in but he's spending all of his time underground fighting mythical horned beasts and people we think are the kingpin and out of the blue this guy named black wolf shows up like what the heck yeah he's looking for demolisher or or deathlock as we we know him and like where does this come from and apparently i had to look this up because black wolf had his own series at the time he had his own ongoing series at the time i guess everyone did and and there's he so he i don't even remember what his story is he's like uh something he's looking for information about his brother or his parents and he thinks he thinks deathlock has the answers so it really has nothing to do with daredevil he's just trying to get a demolisher out out to him and why this story couldn't happen in his own ongoing series i have no idea but it's happening here yeah i don't know yep yeah what do you what do you think of the electro backup um, this was nice. Yeah, this was good. I, I, I enjoyed the Elector backup because he, uh, he saves the kid or she saves the kid and it looks, it looks cool. It's a nice contrast to the previous story that we are not impressed with. And, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, mm-hmm. it's- so the next, the next issue of Daredevil, we have much more of, I guess, the, uh, quote unquote intrigue, um, as now we find out more about like kind of all the different players behind what's been going on. So it's less about the sewer fighting per se and more about the other machinations that were going on. Yeah. You still have some ridiculous stuff with like the King, which it looks like he's wearing a diaper and then has like a bomb wrapped around his, his bulbous chest, like belly. Like it just looks ludicrous. Um, and then you have Daredevil kind of being able to deactivate the bomb, which I have to say it was kind of an interesting sequence because they do break it down into a lot of different panel work. So you do have a sense of, uh, you know, impending doom and, and trying to survive it. But yeah, when the issue's over, you're just kind of like, okay, good. Glad that we're done with that. <laughs> and they've changed the color, uh, starting with the third part of this story, the color palette. I would have loved to see the, the color stay consistent through this whole story because I really liked that tone. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's probably I don't know if they got a mandate saying um, you need to brighten up your comic a little bit here, or what. But uh, it's more standard kind of comic coloring now. And then there's the scene here where Black Wolf shows up in the sewer to confront Deathlock, 
and he's got he's got you know he's been following these clues and this trail that's leading to Deathlock because I guess he comes from the future too, and Deathlock comes from a different time period where he knows what's happened to his parents, and and he's like, what you tell me what's going on, and and Deathlock just says, um, no, I don't know anything that's going on, and that's it. <laughs> See, he doesn't get any answers. Yep. And then the two of them disappear and we never hear from them again. The, the whole Deathlock story doesn't have any bearing on anything in these issues. No, it just didn't need to. It just says like, join me and start anew and just got to sort out myself. And that's it. <laughs> and he walks off in the shadows and yeah, it was like, oh man, come on. Oh. Yeah. It, well, a lot of, a lot of the storyline ends up feeling like they, they seed events or they seed people or they seed ideas and they don't really go anywhere anywhere with it. And what we do get just feels a little bit boring and blasé. And I think, again, if the storyline had been condensed to less issues, maybe it could have been better and it wouldn't have felt as drawn out. Because you have this drawn out feeling and you're throwing in everyone but the kitchen sink for no reason. Then, like, what's the point of half of this? Like, why is Deathlock actually here? What does he add? Is there any journey for Deathlock as a character here? No. Nope. So why is he here? Yeah, Exactly. Yeah, um, I find that uh, everything wraps up in the story on a fairly good note. Uh, it's it's neat to see that the kingpin actually kind of saved the day because he forced the guy who was planting the bombs to confess, and that saved the guys that were underground that were being framed, and it saved everybody else because there's no more bombs. Kingpin's doing it because he is trying to keep control of his own territory. So he did it for his own reasons, but he actually kind of saved the day. If they had focused on this garage bombing story the whole time, I think that I would have had a lot more fun with uh, with this storyline. Yeah, and actually I was thinking about, you know, Kingpin as well. I think like if they sometimes I feel like you don't need to show a character doing everything. And I feel like if we didn't know that Kingpin was necessarily involved, but just had like kind of moments where it kind of all ties together, like, oh, Kingpin was actually pulling the strings. I think that might have been in some ways more interesting than actually seeing the nitty gritty of Kingpin getting down and dirty and having to get stuff done and do stuff. Like, I feel like there's something about the mystique of a character kind of pulling strings is more interesting than actually watching him pull the strings and being a little bit bored by well, I, I think I might disagree with that there because because of the disjointed nature of this story, if they had ended the story and all of a sudden it's just like, oh, the kingpin just took care of everything, it would have seemed like a way too convenient ending. And I would have said that I thought Gregory Wright didn't know how to end it, so he just stuck that ending in there. But because we have seen him in these last few issues, it's obvious that it was building to that end. And so I think it was more natural, I guess. Mm-hmm. I suppose so. I, mean, I just feel like there might have been a way to seed him without yeah. showing him as much. And right. so then it wouldn't feel as everywhere, um, but at least would have a little bit more menace or at least feel like, oh, oh, okay. As opposed to, uh, all right. Yeah. So the last Electra report is from the inker for the Root of Evil miniseries and the inker who was inking uh, Scott McDaniel through uh, Fall from Grace as well. His na- name is Hector Colazzo. And he- Hector actually passed away at a young age i think i can't remember if it was cancer or what so some sort of disease um not too long after these issues like his career was cut quite short but he says he says usually heroes at marvel do what they have to do because they have this very rigid reason for doing things electra is the wild character who gets off on what she does 
and that keeps you on your toes. She's there on the wild side, and you never know what she's going to do next. It's easy to see why Daredevil, who's so regimented, would be attracted to, to her. It's the classic opposites attract. Elector Root of Evil is going to be a visual feast. That comes out of the fact that it's a story that has a lot more meat than most limited series. There are too many things uh, out there that are just for the sake of having one to sell a book on a particular character. A lot of people feeling ripped off because of more it's more and more products going on the shelves. They're going to buy things, falling for the hype, and end up with a read that takes them nowhere. Electra is one limited series that is taking the character someplace new, and def- it's a definite beginning, middle, and end. I know readers are going to be really happy with the entire Electra series sitting right there on their shelves. After they've read it through to the last issue, they're going to go, this is good enough to start all over again. (laughs) Well, sorry, Hector, but those comments are not exactly what we read at the the beginning of this issue from uh, Facebook and Twitter. Okay, one more thing he says here. He says here, as the inker, I'm contributing toward the graphic look Daredevil's been developing, a harder, more experimental edge that's been given on the pages um, as identity like nothing else on the market. That technique on Electra is going to leave readers out of breath once they've reached each, once they've finished each issue. Hmm. So, yeah, having said that, Let's hear from D.G. Chichester, because he's going to talk a little about the Root of Evil miniseries and its placement in Daredevil, in the Daredevil universe, quote-unquote universe. I mean, there were a lot of thoughts coming out of Fall from Grace uh, because it was relatively successful and had gotten a lot of attention back on the character, uh, which was our intent, um, to do a lot of um, uh, integrated and associated uh, Daredevil titles. We, we had probably four or five things, um, you know, ready to, to, to cook in one way or the other uh, that were almost like a mini Daredevil, Daredevil universe. And then I was uh, fired. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so that takes, that takes you off in a different direction. Yeah. But, but certainly Electro probably in my mind would have become a character that we would have played with in within the Daredevil title. Yep. There would have been places where maybe I would have been lucky enough to do some more Electra work on its own. And then in the best of possible shared universe ways, Electra could have been used elsewhere, would have been used elsewhere. But generally the way it works is, you know, an editorial office has control over the character. Yeah. So if another editorial office wants to use it, if the editorial office that owns the character knows their stuff and respects the character, they'll keep it true even if there's a spin-off series being done by so-and-so under another editor. At least that's the theory. It doesn't always work out, but I would think that um, you know, Ralph and Pat and, and so would have would have you know kept kept the guardrails up. So that's why I wanted to say quote universe unquote because it refers to all of those different miniseries that he mentions in this interview. Mm-hmm. So this this miniseries, it's, uh, it was a prestige format book. It was, uh, each issue is, uh, is it double size or is it more than double size? Uh, it's pretty thick. I think, let's see, 21, yeah, we're looking at probably about 48 pages for each issue. And, uh, and it, it when it was printed originally, like you'd have some shiny covers, and the the covers were harder cover stock, like a card stock, 
and they went all out for this new new line of books that they were calling Marvel Select. That's right. Yeah. This was supposed to be the branch, the, the sort of the the kickoff of this new high format book. And I think Marvel, or sorry, I think DC was doing something similar around the same time with their prestige format books. Um, if you could sum up the point of Root of Evil in one sentence, Adam, do you think you could do it? <laughs> um, one sentence. Hold on. Let me think about it. I think the point of Root of Evil is uh, simplify Electra so that others can use her in the Marvel Universe. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's to 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 bring back. Uh, well, yeah, I guess to, because her character becomes so complex in the last one because of the fall from grace story. Let's see what makes her tick through a series of flashbacks and uh, of past experiences and get her ready for a spot that she can be used moving forward. The other thing, the other point, I think, is just to kill off the snake root and also distance her mm-hmm. from the cha- from the chase in order to let her lead her own path or forge her own path. Yeah. Now, one thing I can't remember, and I'm just trying to think, at what point um, publishing chronology, when did Man Without Fear come out compared to this? Because Daredevil Man Without Fear kind of streamlined Daredevil's origin, right? And it was written by Frank Miller and done artwork by uh, John Muir Jr., so I'm just trying to remember what year that came out. Yeah, it was right around this time. Let's see. I'm going to do a quick look up of that so we can get that date. Uh, it was October 93 to February 94. So that would have been right before so like, this. It would probably have been running concurrent to Fall from Grace. Yeah. So what I find distracting about that, considering especially Man Without Fear was extremely well received when that came out, it's just weird to read a story like this where you have flashbacks to Elektra, which don't really line up with how she's written in something that at the time would have been extremely fresh um, in people's minds. Like I know I would say in some ways it does align the character more with her original appearances by Frank Miller in terms of how Electra was written and not being too overly sexualized at a younger age and having that kind of crazy streak that Frank Miller definitely imbued within her in Man Without Fear. Here she feels a little bit more akin to the original version of the character who before the death of her father was a more, not innocent per se, but just more, you know, without darkness, without that kind of dark sexual edge that Frank Miller seems to give a lot of his female characters, but specifically Electra. Yeah. So it's just interesting because that is such a huge part of what we get in this book. And I got to say, like, I liked Root of Evil. I thought it was actually, you know, pretty interesting uh, to kind of see the the origins of, of Electra, her training. Um, and then I, I didn't really care for the, the kind of the main villain of the snake route and maybe how long it went on. But I thought the, the overall idea to kind of take out the snake route was an interesting one. Yeah. What, what did you think about the, the total series? Um, I liked half of it. And there was one comment where it's like, <laughs> I didn't know what was going on until the fourth, fourth issue. And I certainly had that feeling in the first two issues. But once I figured out what, where the, what the players were and what they were after and, and understood that, I, I actually thought that this was um, a fairly well-told story. Like the flashbacks made sense to the the other narrative like they didn't throw in things for no reason um i honestly i think that this story was better told than fall from grace in terms of chichester's mm. writing yeah I, I had a question so you, we we mentioned earlier about the the super glossy pages yeah um so i think those happen to also be the pages with the worst illustrated electra app <laughs> yeah what where, is with that? where she looked like an alien yeah and I'm like, I don't know what's happening. Like, I, I had to, like, open my eyes and be like, am I really tired right now? Like, am I just not paying attention to what's going on? Like, when did she become an alien with giant, like, beady eyes? Like, I don't know what happened. Like, the musculature is all weird, too. Like, 
it's it, and it's supposed to be like a provocative kind of sexy scene or at least potentially sexy instead it's just so weird it's very strange yeah i don't quite understand that at all um and it's just also just a creepy scene because um it, it was what's his name takagi is like oh i'm gonna watch you from uh, from a bush and now i'm gonna come out and watch you bathe <laughs> it's like, he just he's, he's a weird guy and she's supposed to be like 16 or something in, in that flashback, I think, right? Yeah. The series does have a lot of, as I said, Frank Miller undertones. Like a lot of what um, McDaniel is doing with some of the some of the, the blockier uh, angles, again, definitely evokes a lot of Frank Miller at this time. Like even the, the opening sheet of each page for each issue where you have the kind of the black and white image of Elektra. Yeah. Um, like those feel like very, like Frank Miller would do. The covers feel very Frank Miller-esque, like, it's 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 definitely evoking a very specific period or, or or visual of Electra that at this time Electra had really only ever been done prior to uh, Fall from Grace by Frank Miller. So seeing someone else do the character was definitely jarring, but it makes sense to kind of hue to that that visual that iconic look that Frank Miller had pioneered. Yeah, I honestly like uh, honestly I'm not even sure like how much of Root of Evil like a lot of it's just like action sequence to action sequence it's Electra versus the snake root like that's really the story like the snake roots after her she's going after them you have flashbacks that kind of fill in her history you have a cool appearance from nick fury who at first before they showed the eye patch i thought it was going to be john garrett i just kind of assumed yeah that. right yeah totally yeah and, but it yeah. wasn't but like the, the, there's not like really a lot of detail here like you have Electra putting together a team to go against the snake group but none of them are really given that much characterization or or history and and it's kind of over like it, it there's not actually a lot of meat on the bones a lot of it's some interesting and fun visuals and you know it's exciting it's not always the most coherent but generally speaking it's you know it's exciting to look at but in terms of actually kind of writing out the plot and kind of summarizing it it's there's not a lot of meat on the bone yeah i mean they use this sword this one sword that the snake root has um i guess it's like an icon of theirs or something and Every so often, it needs mm-hmm. to it needs to slay an innocent person uh, or a series of innocent persons to restore its energy because it's it provides them with mystic a mystic force or something. I don't know. It is kind of weird. So the snake root has targeted four individuals to to kill in order to you know get all of its um, virgin energy or whatever they want to call it. I can't remember. And Electra gets wind of this and, and tries to stop these people from dying. And so each issue, I think we we meet another person that's going to be killed. And she doesn't end up saving um, any of them except for one. Mm-hmm. Um, Daredevil has a, a brief appearance in this first issue. And it's just to let us know that, you know, this what, what, what timeline this takes place in. Daredevil's wearing his armored costume. So it has to kind of appear during this era and i want to point out the visuals because because like scott mcdaniel was saying in that thing that i read he does do a lot to to differentiate between different scenes and different moods he does a lot of it with playing with Mm -hmm. the borders he puts fancy borders around pages yeah which is very similar to the style of let's say mark buckingham in fables he did that too absolutely uh and chris picello did a lot of that in, in generation x as well and so if you look at some of the flashback scenes uh halfway through this issue we see a scene of of Electra, when she's training when she's 12, and she's training in the snow. And 
he, mm-hmm. um, McDaniel draws this differently. He doesn't rely on the big blocky shadows. He keeps things open. He uses the the colors of the red, or the colorist, I guess, uses the red uh, that's sort of seeping in the in the borders to to create a focus. So it does evoke a different mood. And if you were looking at these, you could, I think you could tell which is a flashback and which is not. That's not the case every single time, but for most of the times it is. True. I would also, I, I think my opinion on McDaniel's art is that I think this is an interesting outlier because his art never really looks this way again. Yeah. Um, like when he goes and does Nightwing, it feels more like his Daredevil work than the Electra work. Yeah. Um, Electra definitely feels like a a different moment and a different experiment. And maybe I, because it was a limited series, you probably had more time to work on it too. Yep. Um, so, and I think that's definitely evident that like, I think there is more care or more work being put into it. Um, regardless of whether or not you like some of the storytelling capabilities. Um, I think it's hard to deny that it definitely feels like, you know, the most time he's ever spent on any pages. I think that he definitely learned a lot from, from fall from grace. I do feel, honestly feel that Scott McDaniel is a better storyteller in this book than he is in fall from grace. There's still some issues and still some, a lot of scenes where I'm like, okay, I have to like actually read this a couple of times to figure out what's going on. But overall, I think he lays out his story a lot better. Yep. Issue number two is called murderer's Bible. Electra. This is the one where Electra puts together a team now, my biggest problem with this team that Elektra puts together is that none of them are given any sort of real time, like screen time for us to get to know them. Nope. So we don't really care. They're all interchangeable. Apparently, they all have their own specialties. They all have a very specific skill, and that's why Elektra brings them together. But it's just like the snake root. There's like five or six snake root guys, and I can't tell you any of their names. And I can't tell you... Nope what any of them are like what's special about any of them and same with Electra's team so we have like literally 10 characters in this book and i really only know the name of Electra and takagi who is the main snake root guy oh for sure like yeah then they're just not given a lot of personality they're just kind of there to, to, to you know to fill up the pages so that we're not just watching Electra, i guess but although i think that would have been enough like i think it it tries too hard to overpopulate the world or her world when I think if it had just been a solo story it would have been fine right we didn't need all these other people and all of these other people end up dying anyway so it's like what was the point of putting together the team because Electra then goes and phases off against everybody anyway yeah it's interesting there's a when there's a shot when they're when they're putting together the big team yeah. and you have Electra kind of standing between everyone and she's wearing green yeah and honest to god she just looks like Cheshire from DC yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, I was like, yeah. what's Cheshire doing here? Why is she in charge? <laughs> it's, it is, yeah, without the iconic red, it's like she could be anybody. Well, and you also have a guy in red, like in that same shot where we have a, all everyone assembled. And you have a guy, I guess, with, like, he basically just looks like Daredevil's there. Like, right. he's wearing red. He's kind of got these kind of, I, I don't know, like, um, almost like belly clubs on the side of him. He's got, like, a mask on him. Like, he's got what looks like, I guess, maybe red hair or just... It, it totally met brown hair. <laughs> Daredevil in a different costume. Yep, you're right. Right? Like, it looks like that could just be Matt. Like, what's yeah. he doing here? Now, for me, the most interesting part of this story was the homeless shelter and the people who were mm. in there. I liked those characters a lot. I thought that was cool. And unfortunately, they don't really have any bearing on the on the, the larger story at all but they are the most interesting characters no. in this book yeah yeah but they didn't really add up to anything no they didn't okay issue number three 
Hour of the Wolf. In this one, Electra and um, I guess her team, which she calls her Ryu, they attempt to save Father Peter Nova, but the snake root gets to him and takes him out. And at the same time, uh, they try to save Dr. Sakoto in Africa, who's somebody from Electra's past, and that doesn't work out well either. The biggest reveal nope. in this issue is Electra's brother, who I didn't even know she had a brother. Um, uh, what is his name? Orestes. Yes. Yeah. Which is new to, news to me as well. I don't remember that at all from before. Um, or after. Like, they don't, I, mean, I guess I haven't read a whole lot of Electra, but they don't really pay any, any attention to him. But apparently he is the guy who's, who kills Electra's mother because he thinks that uh, she's pregnant with Electra from someone other than her dad. He calls her a whore mm. and, and ends up killing her. And it's only after that, which we find out in the next issue, that he finds out that, in fact, um, it is the father, like elect, his father is Electra's father. It is her true, he, she is a true sister to him, and he made a big mistake, which is why he's kind of exiled himself. So his story is kind of interesting, um, and he comes back a little bit later. His story feels very Frank Miller-esque. Like, that feels like a Frank Miller story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought this issue had a much better flow to it because the the flashbacks had more of a bearing on the actual story and, and her reasons for fighting. And um, I liked the the way that um, that McDaniel lays out a, the, a lot of the panels, how they have the circular panels in the middle. Like each page has this circular mm-hmm. panel to it, which gives us the focus of the fight, and it grounds each page, bringing the the climax of each page, um, in, into focus. So that was helpful, yeah. I think, in its storytelling. Did you also notice that each of these issues is written in two parts, in two halves? So this could yes. have been a six issue, or sorry, an eight issue miniseries, but they've put combined two parts, and that must just be so that. Uh, um, uh, Chichester can lay out his story a little bit better with his with, with the different acts. Yeah, uh, it definitely. I, I thought, again, I, I thought it worked. I mean, I know that we we heard a lot of people at the beginning kind of saying that this wasn't the most comprehensive or or comprehensive. Um, people couldn't comprehend what was going on half the time, but yeah. I, you know, I, I I dug it, and I I can't imagine though reading this when it would have come out initially and trying to follow. You know the story beats you know every month when you have this much kind of kind of going on like this. Like I, I think it kind of benefits for reading it all at once. Or on the flip side, does it benefit from you being able to have time to read an issue over and over again uh, before you the next issue mm. comes out? Maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. Possible. So final issue. Oh yeah, this is the issue that has the, the glossy pages. We mentioned that already. Final issue number four is called "She Who Slays," and yeah, this is where they, we find out the full story of Or Orestes and Electra's yeah. mom. And Electra sets a trap to take out the snake root. I thought it was a pretty nice, a pretty good trap of uh, drawing them to a certain uh, certain place where she has control of the situation. Her and one of the other guys, the only guy that survived uh, the battle. I can't remember his name. Ah, mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah. What was that guy's name? Was it Target? Was Target the one? I think maybe. I can't remember. Anyway, it doesn't I think matter. So. Um, and then we also <laughs> get this backstory of how she and Takagi had like a romantic relationship in the past, and maybe Takagi is going easy on Electra and not actually going out of his way to kill her because he still loves her. And so that was kind of weird. 
because I didn't get that feeling from anything from his appearances in Fall from Grace, not that I remember at least, uh, nor do I remember that from the first few issues of this miniseries. No, it did feel a little grafted on, but I actually didn't mind it. Uh, it had added a little bit more of a uh, intimate, you know, personality to their last sequence. So, you know, it gave it a little bit more oomph, and I think it needed it. So I yeah. was okay with it. And it actually fleshed out Takagi's character in general because he was pretty much a nothing character up until this point, anyway. But having that uh, that inner struggle between whether you kill her or love her is it makes him more interesting for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And I uh, have to say one thing I appreciated about um, the kind of the backstory about Electra's father and and the mother is that we actually get to you know spend a little bit of time with the father because up until this point, really, he's only ever been ever seen briefly when he dies, <laughs> knocked out of a window right. or yeah, or shot shot through a window. Um, so actually giving him some agency or at least giving him a personality, I thought was interesting because we'd never seen that before. Um, the character had been really literally a cipher. Um, it was the reason for, you know, Electra to be parted from Matt Murdock after they were in college, but that was about it. So I actually liked giving a little bit more depth to that relationship. And I think that brings us to the end of this Root of Evil miniseries. Uh, do you have any final comments about it, Adam? I mean, I like it. I, it, I, I thought that was kind of the high, one of the highlights for me, as much as it was a little bit all over the place. I thought it was an interesting Electra story. I didn't mind it, and I, I thought I liked that what McDaniel was trying to do overall. It wasn't all great, but I, I think it wasn't too bad. I think that it, yeah, it, it started off a little rocky. There are too many characters, but I did end up enjoying the plot and finding out more about Electra's history. I really also think that this is a nice coda to fall from grace because it's the two continue, you know, it's the two same creators, the writer and the artist. And, Mm -hmm. and it really finishes, it leaves fall from grace in a good spot because we were, it was weird at the end of fall from grace because Electra is back and she's sort of reborn. She's pure, but then she absorbs the evil. And then we don't really know what happens to her after that. I mean, that's comic books. So it leaves you on a cliffhanger, right? But this kind of wraps things up. It wraps things up with the snake root. It's a good end to Chichester's run. And I'm glad that they included it in the Epic Collections. I agree with that. Yeah. Okay, well, why don't we move on here? Uh, Before we move on, actually, I'm going to play one more clip from Chichester talking about being fired off of this book. That was a a situation of uh, the book had changed editorial hands. Uh, It had gone out from under Ralph into um, Bobby Chase's office. Um, Bobby was, uh, I believe, putting things under a kind of a, a... sub imprint within Marvel. I think they were calling it something like Marvel Knights. And it was a lot of um, the street level characters. It was Daredevil. It might've been the Punisher. Um, yeah. Marvel. I think it was Marvel edge. Marvel edge. Yeah. Okay. And then Marvel yeah. Knights came a little, that was the Kevin Smith. What stuff was Marvel okay. Knights. Yeah. Okay. Well, Marvel edge, but it was, that was the idea. Yeah. And it was like, okay, switching over. That's disappointing. I had a good relationship with Ralph and, uh, I knew Ralph understood the character, um, but uh, I had a, I thought, good relationship with Bobby. I had worked with her office on um, a book called Night Stalkers, which was a kind of a, a supernatural uh, Ghostbusters sort of title. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, and then kind of out of the blue, I was midway through um, uh, working on some upcoming stories, and I got a call from from somebody who said, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but you're being fired off the title. Oh, boy. 
And so I was a shocked, b uh, disappointed because um, I thought it was a pretty cowardly thing to do. If you're going to fire me, then fire me. Like yeah. I'm, it's, it's work for a hire, right? It, it's uh, I am a licensed or whatever. You know, I'm a contracted writer on a title that's owned by the company. These things happen. They're not they're not easy to take, especially when you've done a lot of work and you think you've contributed to it. But that was a um, that was a bit of a a like a shock just overall because I had had no advance notice of of uh, you know you're you're screwing up a deadline or your stories aren't going in a good direction or we want you to do this and you're being resistant to that and you're not taking editorial guidance or whatever. It was just a uh, it felt to me like um, all right now I have control of this title I want to I want to put somebody new on it. Which again is editorial, I guess. Um, fiat, they can do that, but yeah. didn't feel right. And again, I never, I never heard from Bobby's office actually directly on that. Oh wow! Uh, it, it was just sort of put out there in this kind of weak. You know, you're you're not supposed to know this, but I'm telling you this sort of way. And then I I did some checking around and found out. Like I guess maybe one day I would have sent a story and a voucher in, and it just would have come back with a sorry thing on it i don't know <laughs> you know <laughs> you know maybe that would have been how i would have ultimately found out if i hadn't gotten this inside uh, like sort of scoop daredevil number 338 this is part 1 of a four part story does this story have a, an overall name i don't think it does i don't think it does i was call- internally in my head i was calling it the cruel story but yeah no the there's no actual story. yep Okay, so it, this this particular chapter is called Treachery. It's written by Alan Smithy, and if anyone knows anything about film history or just the film industry in general, people who don't want their name associated with a book will often use the name Alan Smithy. So, Chichester alluded to it in the clip that I just played. He is the writer of this story, going under a different name. And honestly, I actually don't really think it feels like Chichester at all. It's a lot more kind of a, of a straightforward storytelling than he usually does or that we've seen him do in, in the past book with Tree of Knowledge and with Fall from Grace. I mean, he does have a dis- different artistic partner, so we don't know exactly what that was going to have been like. That's and like, true. I don't think I've ever heard of this artist before, Alexander Gibran. I don't think I've ever heard of him before, yeah. so... You know, who knows what the working relationship was like. And again, as as we know, the book was just kind of in turmoil and kind of moving around editorially. So there's some major changes because Machio had been the editor on Daredevil forever. Oh, yeah. Um, so suddenly, you know, you have a big sea change. So, you know, and you have an artist that I've never heard of before. Who knows how much work he's ever done on kind of mainstream big two comics. Um, for the most part, I actually thought his artwork wasn't, wasn't bad. No, I liked um, it. There was a few... Now, like in this issue in particular, like there's some shots I really liked. Like the, the last page, I thought was pretty interesting. Um, you know, the cruel ends up looking a lot dumber <laughs> as the storyline progresses. But in that first, like that that shot there, he looked pretty good. Uh, in this issue as well, you have a shot of uh, of Murdoch where you have him uh, feeling the the cards in front of him, and then you have this nice kind of shadows on his eyes, which is kind of symbolism because he's blind. And yeah. I actually really like that shot. So there's a bunch of stuff he does that's actually pretty good. It's it's kind of a very straightforward you know storyline. And I think someone one of the comments was that you know it's it's so you know all these people who happen to be they be in um, um, Daredevil's orbit happen to have all been at this one place in the past. But I'm like that's that's just narrative story telling it's always full of these conveniences so i kind of let that go um the only thing that bugged me about it was kingpin's 
uh, involvement uh, as being as street level as it was. But the rest of it I thought was kind of an interesting mystery as to, you know, why were all these place, people in the same place? I also like, as we progress, how Daredevil is so narcissistic that he thinks, of course, that it has something to do with him. And yet it has nothing to do with him at all, even <laughs> yeah. though it's all these people he's been connected Yeah, I like which that. Which I like. I thought that was an interesting yep. touch. One of the things that I liked about this story and this volume in general is that it kind of brought Daredevil back down to to the street level to some more just, um, well, the first story was under the street level, <laughs> but, but just to some more smaller storytelling. We had some really, mm. really high concepts and big ideas with Fall from Grace and with the Tree of Knowledge. And uh, and it was just nice to kind of get a breather from that, to have something where Daredevil's doing more detective work, to have something where he's, mm-hmm. you know, um, interacting with the people in his supporting cast who are are involved with the police or the newspapers. It was just kind of a nice break, and I enjoyed I enjoyed reading this story. Actually, a lot of people didn't like it. I think you said you didn't really care for it, but I I liked it. I thought it was nice. Yeah, the more I think about it, the more I think I do appreciate parts of it, um, especially the first couple chapters, I think are stronger. Um, like the first issue is interesting, too. And we talked about this before, but the idea that you know you start having, you know, Daredevil doesn't really have a supporting cast really at this point. Like they've all kind of been thrown away and we see them once in a while. Yet this issue really dives back into, you know, having Karen have a story. But her story just feels like it, again, kind of comes out of nowhere. It does. But it's interesting. And, and like I would it, it, it's weird to say this, but at this point in time, I'm actually more invested in Karen's story. I'm like, that's pretty cool. An interesting concept, like how she gets kind of involved with this this thing that ties back into her history. And I'm like, I want to read that story. Like, I want to read Karen Page's, uh, you know, badass, you know, kind of PI on her own, trying totally. to figure out what's going on with this poten- potential, you know, uh, underage uh, porn. That's really interesting and engaging, and it means something to the character. Whereas a lot of the stuff we've seen Matt do in this volume, that you know, of course, it wasn't all by Chichester or Smithy, whatever you want to call him. Um, it wasn't, re- you know, when we saw Matt doing stuff, it wasn't really, there wasn't a lot of personal connections for him. Whereas this is for Karen, this is a, a very personal story, and it's actually very interesting. And I found myself really pulled in to see what happens with Karen. And we actually do get kind of the one personal thing that happens to Matt in this storyline comes up in a few issues here. And I don't think that he even really deals with it or shows the proper sort of emotion over it. So let's, uh, let's, let's, hold on, let's backtrack a little bit and get into issue number one here. Um, Daredevil or Matt is investigating a series of murders. He thinks are all connected and connected to him. And, uh, and like you said, Karen discovers this kitty porn ring accidentally when she is reviewing a, some sort of file that she's gotten her, her hands on. I can't remember. Uh, but the, the the whole thing starts off, and this is a great storytelling premise. It starts off showing us this burned-out diner and things scattered all over the, the ground that have been there forever. And you see hints of, of, of people and characters that we know based on their belongings, like pictures or photographs or articles, files. And we have no idea what that means. It's a great mystery. Now we, we're, we're ready to go into the adventure. And I, I just like the way that it sets everything up here. I think I agree. And so a question for you, because I don't think you you have a big history with Daredevil. Did the name O'Brien mean anything to you when you first saw it? Nope, it didn't. It really didn't. I had to do a little bit of research on that. Okay, so for me, that immediately stood out. I'm like, oh, yeah, because, you know, she she was Matt's girlfriend at the very beginning of Fall from uh, sorry, uh, Born Again and then ended up with Foggy. But I never really knew what happened after that. Right. And I kind of I knew her end kind of vaguely knew, like knew that she eventually passed away did not know how or when um so it was interesting to kind of see that here because again i had a recollection of the character but didn't had lost track of the character to be honest yeah uh so we're introduced to this character named cruel his real name 
Oh, what is his real name? Ah, uh, I can't remember. Vic Crew Cruelis or I don't can't remember something like that. But anyway, he <laughs> he he's searching. He he can't remember what happened at the diner. And his way to find out how what what happened at the diner is that he attacks and kills all the people he remembers were at the diner. And the every time he kills somebody, he remembers a little bit more of the person who attacked him. And uh, and that's kind of a weird premise, but, you know, we'll go with it. <laughs> yeah, it, it is strange, but it's one of the things you just kind of go with it, and uh, then, then it's fine. <laughs> yep, it is. It, it surprised me how fast this issue really reads, because, like, there's actually a fair bit going on, but again, like, you know, you have, as you said, the first couple pages kind of setting up this idea of this, this diner, what's going on there. You have Matt swinging through the city, and that's like three or four or five, what, six, seven pages where he sees this guy end up, who ends up um, you know, being injured. And I guess, he does he die right in his arm there, or, or is he still awake and he just passed out? I, I Let me see. Oh, the, any, any mess team shows up, so. Oh, okay. I guess he's all right. I hope so. <laughs> and then we have the tire yard, uh, or the auto yard where Kingpin's working, and then he ends up killing one of the guys who disrespects him. That's like three pages there. Yep. You got two pages of, uh, of Karen... Um, finding out, you know, or confronting the people who may or may not have a child pornography ring. Uh, then you have, you know, a couple pages of, of Matt thinking about the fact that he's Jack Batlin. He tries to, you know, scam a guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, there is and, a lot going on. He pulls a gun on him. Yeah. Like, there's a lot going on, there but is. it goes by so fast. Then you have this this other um, kind of scam artist um, wants to talk to, to Jack about what's going on in this corner. And then you're into, you know, the first two pages of Cool looking angry and he wants to find out about his past and that's the issue like it breezes by it does and that's in stark contrast to uh, Chichester's work on Fall from Grace because those mm-hmm. issues are they take a lot of work to read so he changed but is that Chichester's fault or is that partially McDaniel's fault well maybe it's partially McDaniel's but Chichester liked to do a lot of narration he doesn't do as much Mm. narration here as he did in Fall from Grace Uh, and I wonder if maybe after he like I don't know how involved he was here this could be his story but somebody else scripted it because he was fired off the book so maybe it's like completely not his work or it could be that he submitted his script and then he was let go. And so the editor redid all of the dialogue or, you know, got somebody else to, to redo it. Like a lot of things could have happened here to make it sound less like Chichester. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you want to move on to part two? Sure. Um, I really don't like the cover. Okay. Yeah. How like, come? Um, I don't, because I, I just don't know if it's really that well, like, like what is Kingpin wearing and like, or how, like what is the shape of the clothing? Like, I think it's trying to pull off like a, almost like a Senkovich look. And I don't know if it really succeeds. And yeah. is he burning like his old Kingpin clothes? Because then that doesn't really make sense based on what we end up seeing, you know, later on in the storyline with him, like legitimately wearing those exact clothes. So right. I, I just, I just not sure if the metaphor works. <laughs> yeah. I, it looks like he's wearing an open, just an open shirt open button up shirt or mm-hmm. something and that's definitely what we've been seeing him wearing in the past couple of issues but i wonder if it's a reference to the kingpin of the past getting rid of evidence um yeah i guess so but uh, yeah you're right i don't know i don't quite understand what's going on it's a nice enough image though it looks kind of cool and uh, the 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 lighting is nice and you're right he does this who i can't i don't know who's doing this but it is the a very sinkevich kind of drawing that's for sure mm-hmm now this issue it's interesting so the the whole storyline basically wants us to believe that there's a mystery as to who did this to cruel however 
in no way does it ever really feel like it because it's so obvious. Yeah, like yes. the guy's driving <laughs> a Fisk wholesale spices truck. There's a big fat guy after him. I'm sorry, but there's not a lot of other opportunities here. Right. But that's one of the things is that the 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 reader knows, but none of the characters. Uh, and this is this is a storytelling way. The it, the story is more of how how is this guy going to find out, not what is the actual mystery. Um, and True, but then why keep putting him in shadows for us when when Cruel can't even see who who it is? Like I can understand when Cruel's having kind of his memories and not being able to quite fill in the, the blanks of who yeah. this person was. No, that's a good but point. we as the reader absolutely know. So yep. there's no need to give us that extra. You know, they continuously put him in shadow, and it means nothing because we know who it is, unless we're just not paying attention. Well, I think that these these clips that we see. Um, uh, each issue here of this of this story begins with more of the story. Like we're pulling it back, and we get to find out more. And I feel like it's his memories. This is the memory that has been revealed that he's now remembering. And so, if he looks behind him, as he does in this on the second page of this issue, and uh, and sees the the car behind him, but he doesn't remember the face, it's going to be black, or it's going to be obscured somehow. And so, I feel like mm. this is. This is what he sees, which is why Kingpin's face is in the shadows. Okay. Uh, then we have Cruel attacking uh, uh, Ben and Doris, which I actually thought was very effective. Yeah. Um, Doris never makes a lot of appearances, but usually something bad happens to her. I think she's unfortunately dead now, actually. But um, yeah. But the character definitely had some rough times. Um, and so here she gets, you know, kind of beaten by Cruel as well. But Cruel absorbs Ben Urich's memory so he can fill in more of the blanks of the moment at the diner years ago. We, we understand more now about why Ben Urich was there. Um, and then we go back to Jack Batlin having his, his uh, tete-a-tete with this other, uh, this other scam artist. But then Matt takes off, puts on the armor somewhere. I don't know where he had the armor even. <laughs> um, and he goes, you know, is able to find Ben and again, he's kind of playing at, you know, I'm Daredevil. He's pretending he's not Matt. It's 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 so awkward and weird, but I guess this is just where the character was at this point. Um, and I like how Ben tries to kind of slip him up again, yep. um, the same way he originally did, which is a nice callback. So at least if you're going to play this game, Chichester's is getting his, his mileage out of it, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Um, and even having Ben, you're kind of really guilt trip Matt. So I, I feel like he knows. Like, I feel like it doesn't matter if he's kind of passed his test. He still knows that it's Matt, and he's definitely kind of sticking it to him here. Uh, we then flash back to um, uh, to Foggy Nelson, and he's remembering things. Or, sorry, he's just swamped at work. Karen's there. Uh, so is uh, someone else trying to get him to do some work that maybe he wouldn't appreciate doing. But he has to keep the lights on. Karen's, again, sticking it to him, saying, you know, if, if Matt was here, he wouldn't be doing this type of work. Um, and we go back to the Kingpin, who, again, is in full typical regalia and i guess he does get naked here and, and oh he burn burns his, his clothes. clothes that's what's on the front cover which i did forget so oh, yeah, i so guess I. I have to take back everything i said <laughs> i forgot that it's too. very unfair of me but by the end by the end of like the next issue he's going to be wearing those clothes again so right i don't think it matters um but and that's basically the issue then you have cruel is uh, about to uh, confront uh, foggy nelson to get his memories again very straightforward storytelling and i kind of don't mind it i it, the art isn't maybe the best but it's fairly clear storytelling which i very much appreciate yeah i appreciate that too it's it's uh, totally fine There's, uh, he i think he does the daredevil costume really well i like the big splash pages we get with daredevil swinging through the city we get that a, a couple of times the the one in the last issue was great um, interesting choices as well, like on the page where he confronts uh, Ben, and Ben shows him the photo. Opposite of that one, you get the huge Daredevil face, 
with um, with some of those panels in the top right corner. It's an odd use of negative space in the background there with the panels kind of going over his head, but uh, but it still looks nice and it leads you to believe that Matt, like there's an emptiness inside of Matt because of the emptiness in the background. That's what I got out of that panel at least. Absolutely. No, I think it was very effective. Yep. Uh, and then I uh, I think in, in the very first page here where, um, not the first page of the issue, but the first page where Cruel is jumping out and attacking Ben, he reminds me a lot of Ravage 2099. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Uh, and it's, it's I want to make a big note of the scarring on the side of his face. He blames whoever he can't remember for disfiguring his face here uh, because he's been burned. And it's... All of the burns have been localized just to the the left side of his face, um, over his left eye. Yep. And so that mm-hmm. when we get a we're going to get an artist change in a little while, and that completely changes in a very weird way. <laughs> huh. Okay, so Daredevil three forty. This one's called Subversion. This is the issue where we talked about it a little bit before. Um, the where. Daredevil's past girlfriend is uh, murdered by Cruel, pushed out a window. She falls to her death. It's actually kind of gruesome. It is. However, so, I mean, we'll get to obviously the, the plot beats, but what I will, what I do appreciate about her death is that it's not because of Daredevil. Like, there's nothing that Daredevil yeah. is involved with. Like, it's just her living her own life and being in the wrong place at the wrong time and then it happening. That's it, which is kind of interesting because it, they, they, they dispense with this character it doesn't really seem to matter to Matt that much. I mean, he doesn't like it, but I mean, it's not like it's, it's not like it was Karen who died or, you know, even typhoid Mary or, or Electra. Yeah. Like it was someone who he liked, but it doesn't have a huge impact on him. Well, that's, um, yeah, that's, it's also, that's what I mentioned at the beginning of when we were talking about this as well. It's like, I don't think that, that, that death was handled very well. I would have, and especially, and maybe it's because Matt is, is um, suppressing his emotions or like pushing away all of this kind of stuff. But he has his, the one panel where you can see he's upset and then he just kind of gets over mm. it. It doesn't have any really lingering lasting effect and it doesn't even really drive him to solve this case in a different way. He just goes about what he always does. Yeah. And actually, I'm trying to remember, but is there, I guess maybe not in this collection, but does Foggy ever find out or does he have any emotions at all about it? Because again, he dated her too. Right. Yeah. It's not in this collection and I haven't read the next one, so I can't say for sure. I guess we will find out when we tackle that volume. Yeah. It's 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 weird because part of me likes that she, I don't like that a character dies. However, it's interesting that Again, we're so used to uh, women being killed off because of you know the superhero, so it can create additional pathos. And yeah. really, there's nothing that Matt could have done, and it, it, he wasn't the reason she died. And I find that interesting, yeah. just because it's an outlier. It's not as typical as what you'd expect. Like women around Matt don't live long. Um, um, the Heather Glenn is kind of the more tragic one, um, the most tragic one, I would say, right. um, in a lot of ways, in terms of how she met her end. So this was an, an interesting one, where it's another woman that he'd loved died. Or at least that he had feelings for and had a relationship with, but it was had nothing to do with him. And chronologically, like I guess uh, Electra was the first one, and then Heather, and then Gloriana. Like there was kind of a big gap before you have another death of someone close to him. Um, oh yeah, I forgot that he actually goes to the morgue to feel her face to get confirmation yes. for himself. So he does have a little bit of a morning kind of a scene. But again, the next issue, there's but that's no, it. no real mention of it. <laughs> 
Uh, okay, so at the very beginning of this issue, we get some more of what I think are Cruel's memories. We're introduced mm-hmm. to specifically everybody who's in the bar. By they call them all by name, and so he knows who he needs to track down. And then again, we have the the shadow of the shadow figure of the kingpin, who I still think that this is a memory of his, and which is why we can't see who that is. Okay. Uh, and then uh, there's also a scene where kingpin is. He has a new tailor, and he is wearing a new outfit. Now his suit is black, and he's wearing some, like, blue mm. pants, but he's he doesn't wear the white shirt anymore. And I wonder if that is a symbol of, uh, of a new kingpin. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think any artist after this is really going to follow through with the, the new kingpin look. No. Um, and I love the scene where uh, he's in his his roommate, or he's in his place with his buddy, and um, he, the 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 death of Gloriana is on TV, but he can't tell. <laughs> but he's supposed to pretend that he can see because he's not Matt Murdock, and um, he's like, and his buddy's like, can't you tell? It's right there on the TV. What are you blind? <laughs> so there's not very much yeah. humor in this book. So you got to get the humor bits when you can when you can take them. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, it's it's a fine issue. I I mean I again uh, the cruel stuff is a little bit extra weird because now he's like living in the sewers and eating rats. Like it feels like they're kind of taking a hard turn because previously wasn't he just like in an apartment bodybuilding? Yeah, and now he is. Yeah, now he's naked and eating rats, uh, and it's weird. <laughs> it's very strange, and it gets even more weirder when we get into the next issue here. So do you want to go to the next issue? Yeah. So not a great cover. <laughs> It's it, it's yeah. interesting. It's you know, c- considering the collection it's in, um, you'd almost be forgiven for thinking that this was the monstrous king from the last storyline. Totally, um, because because it, it looks monstrous. It doesn't really look like a human. This is the cover that was chosen as the back cover for the epic collection. Because yeah, interesting choices all around. We haven't really talked about a lot of the covers in this issue, but there aren't any real great ones that really showcase Daredevil like in his full figure. He's either obscured or he's not in it at all or whatever. This is one of the only the only covers where you actually see Daredevil's costume, which is why I think we have the cover we do for this epic collection where he's in the yellow costume because there aren't there like literally aren't any mm. better choices. No, it's interesting too that they even called it Root of Evil, which is not even a Daredevil story. Right. Yeah, but that's uh epic collections will do that. True. It's just it's interesting. Um, yeah. So this this issues by you know Keith Pollard. Very different look. Very completely different. different. Yep. Like it's it's not bad. It's just it feels like they didn't read the last three issues at all. So Cruel looks as you said very different. Uh, a lot more monstrous. Less of a man. Um, yeah. The visual on his face is completely different. Like everything's just kind of whacked out. Um, and it's not necessarily bad. It's just not on model and nothing like the last few issues. Um, the pages with uh, John Garrett. Um, look, you know, at the unemployment office, like there was just so messy and so much line work. Like it's, the, I, I felt like the uh, the previous artist you had a judicious use of lines, whereas here it just looks so muddied and, and over rendered. And I wonder why that is. I mean, Keith Pollard, at, by this point, had been working for in, in comics for like I don't know twenty five years or so, maybe. Uh, like he's been around for a long time. I mean, it could have been a rush job. Like maybe it was just kind of like they didn't know how long the other guy would be on, and then you know it fell through, so they had to bring him on quickly. Um, maybe it's the inks by Art Nichols again, a name I don't recognize. Yeah, um, it could be a bunch of those things. Um, the colors, even by Max Shield, that's not a name I recognize either. So it feels like we're seeing a lot of names that are not extremely memorable and not ones we're used to seeing in the industry. So who knows 
what was really going on. Again, we know that there was a lot of kind of politicking behind the scenes. So who knows what was going into the production of this book? Yeah. It had just changed hands editorially. So, you know, everything's up in the air. Oh, yeah. We have a new editor. Oh, no. Editor in chief, Bobby Chase. Oh, you know what? This is a no. Yeah, that's right. This was the um, when they broke down into five major groups. So you didn't have the editor in chief like you used to. You had the editor in chief of a of a subsection. Right. So you had the editor was Murray Javits, who reported yeah. that Bobby Chase was one of those section heads. This is after Defalco was removed. Yeah, and so this is when I guess they were ramping up to to introduce this whole Marvel edge, the Daredevil and like Punisher mm-hmm. and Hulk. They were all going to be under that same banner of their more edgy characters. And then yeah, the Spider Man yeah. ones. This was the, the Clone War, the Clone Years, right? The Clone Saga. Mm-hmm era and all of the spider-man titles went under and new warriors went under the same banner yeah so this issue not the greatest um i mean the story's fine it's just the art i find very hard to 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 look at um it's not my favorite uh again the the way in which cruel looks is just very just you know kind of takes you out of it because it just doesn't feel very congruous with the you know the the previous three issues kingpin's wearing his white again (laughs) so again that that has been thrown out the window like it just feels like there was no no one was really keeping track of, you know, what what are the last three issues about? Let's make sure this is consistent visually. That's not necessarily Pollard's fault if he wasn't given direction or wasn't like this was up to editorial. Editorial yeah. should have said, no, color him in this suit. No, uh, you know, make cruel look like this. Make sure the scars on this side. Like if editorial is not telling or giving some direction to the artist, how is the artist going to know any better? So I don't necessarily think it's Pollard's fault. I think that by changing cruel's face all of a sudden we have a completely different story he's mm-hmm. not i don't i don't have the same sort of sympathy for a character that looks like a monster than i do with a person who looks like a scarred person yeah and so now all of a like sudden, even, he's just a monster killing people. Yeah. Well, like even when we go into the next issue, so this is what, issue, issue 342, like when you see what happens to him after, after everything is burned, like now his entire face is like massacred. Like he is a monstrous yeah. kind of creature to even look at. But that's not what it was before. No. So it's just, it, it does t- change the tone and tenor of the story in a very alarming way. Yeah, it does. Um, I do like the use of uh, John Garrett. Uh, and this next issue, I thought it was interesting to kind of see him paired with Karen Page. I, again, I, I don't remember a lot of the stuff, so I was reading through it again. I was like, oh, yeah, like they brought back Garrett for this. I'm so excited for this. And you were saying that you're more interested in this Karen Page story. I'm really interested. I want to see Karen and John Garrett working together. That to me sounds like a bizarre combo, but it should be good. <laughs> I don't think it lasts very long because I have scattered memories of this period and the like and the two epics after it. So I, I'm not sure how long it ever really goes for. But this issue just you know just didn't quite work. Even the death of Cruel seemed too easy. Yeah. And like all this build up for nothing. It, I did like the mystery of it. And even Kingpin going to jail, you have him kind of maneuvering behind the scenes throughout this storyline so that there's no. There's nothing uh, linking him to any crime. Like, I was wondering how they were going to get out of this Kingpin kind of being down, because I know at some point he's he's back, but I wasn't sure how that happened. But it all kind of felt very ham-fisted. The last page here especially feels that it's a lot of telling, not showing, poor storytelling from that perspective. But I think it was just, um, you know, Tychester, this was his last issue, or whoever was working on it had to draw and put it, pull everything together so that they could pass on the book to whoever was going to come on next. Yeah. Did you see... Um, I, I honestly don't think that uh, Chichester did the last few issues of this story. 
No, I, I'm sure it was heavily rewritten. I'm sure he probably did the plot, maybe, and then someone else rewrote a lot of the dialogue. Who knows? Yeah, I don't think that he had any plans, based on the interview that I did with him, I don't think he had any plans to reintroduce Kingpin into the story anytime soon. So to have Kingpin and Daredevil actually facing off was definitely something that Chichester was not going to do. So there is a, there's another hand at work here. Uh, and do you notice that on the last page of issue 341, Daredevil and Kingpin are facing off. Kingpin's wearing his white suit. And then you turn to the splash page of issue number 242. It's a double-page spread, and Kingpin's wearing his mm-hmm. black suit now. Like oh, it's, God. it's the same scene. <laughs> they just It's like, I guess, maybe the editor was, was like, oh, man, we missed that. We better correct it for the next issue. Uh, so he's back in his black suit, but it's like, no, he sh- you should have just left him in his white suit. Now it looks even more obvious that you guys made a mistake. <laughs> yeah, look, it does look just worse now. It's Yeah, it's kind of a mess. I just want to say one more thing about this story before we go on to 343, and it's that there's the the conversation between Foggy and, and Daredevil, the new and improved Daredevil. Um, mm. And this is the first time that they've really talked or spoken since Matt has died. So this is an important little meeting here, and Daredevil even introduces himself, uh, pretending that he's a different Daredevil. And uh, so that was, it. I think this is slowly starting to do things to get the character back on track. And that's especially what the next issue is for. But we're starting to see uh, Matt reaching out to his past, his, his past friends now. Mm-hmm. So the next issue is interesting. You have Warren Ellis of all people, and I do not remember him ever writing Daredevil, so that was weird. Yeah. Um, so it comes on for, like, what, one issue? And this is where, I don't know, it's kind of a weird period for Daredevil because it, it feels like it comes out of nowhere, the idea that they're kind of, was there a mental break at some point for Matt? <laughs> um, yeah. You know, like, the fact that he's had these two different lives, Matt Murdock and Jack Batlam, and it in kind of this internal struggle in his own mind, which eventually will kind of unravel him a little bit. It just feels like it kind of comes out of nowhere, but it definitely feels like a Warren Ellis take on a, on a character like this. I like it. It's interesting having kind of him having kind of a breakdown in who he really is, um, and him having the kind of multiple uh, kind of blackouts and just trying to kind of figure this out and who he is, what is, you know, in that it's his life. It's a weird issue in that respect. Keith Pollard just does the breakdowns with Arvel M. Jones, Tom Palmer does the finishes, which is extremely obvious. It, yep. it feels like a very heavy Tom Palmer uh, look. And you have cu- guest colors by John Callis, who ends up being a pretty big colorist later on. So I actually liked this, but it felt like a weird, not inventory story, but kind of weird done in one yeah. in a very particular period. Now, at this time, Warren Ellis, I believe, was was writing Excalibur. And he was taking okay. that book, which had fallen in sales, and really bumping it up. And Warren Ellis at Marvel would be used to fix a lot of their failing titles. Uh, True, uh, but most of those would be a few years later, because I remember that during the Revolution, he did the Counteracts books. But I'm trying to remember what else he was working on at this point. Was he doing Transmetropolitan at this point? Uh, I, th- I don't know if it was around this time or if it was a little bit later. Um, but I, I can see Marvel saying, hey, can you help us out to, uh, do you have any ideas for what we could do with Daredevil? Because these issues, like you said, this is a very Warren Ellis type of a, of a story to insert this, uh, this mental illness in here or the, uh, some sort of like a schizophrenia or something and, and then leaving it up to another writer to fly with it. Uh, he, oh, he was also working on Doom 2099 at this time, I, I believe. Interesting. Yeah, well, it is interesting, it. too, that, you know, of all the people to come on to a character 
who may or may not now be dealing with mental illness, Jam De Mateus is probably the best person that could <laughs> come on to write a story about a character having those types of issues. Yeah. It's very cool. I like that this just feels like it's it's trying to get things on track. It's like, so why was Matt acting so out of character all of these these issues these past couple of years with the new costume and such? Well, it's because maybe he is having he, he's got a split personality and he he's got another side that's kind of taking over and there's an internal battle now where Matt's trying to regain his his own sense of self. Um, mm-hmm. both that, and that's why he's the lawyer here. In this one, he's he's not in his costume at all in this issue. He is dressed up in his lawyer outfit, which he says he hasn't touched in a long time. And that's what that's normal Matt. And that's the narration we're getting in this issue. And then we have these, t- these narration boxes that are in uh, mixed case. So a lot of it's lowercase le- letters with uppercase. And that's supposed to be, he, he calls that out at the beginning of this issue as the armored suit talking to him. Hmm. Um, okay, I, actually, I don't know if he says that exactly or not, but that's it's what I get is that we have the darker side of Matt Murdock represented by this new costume at at war with Matt Murdock himself, like his normal, the way he usually has been portrayed over and over again. Uh, and every time we have, he blacks out several times in this issue, and every time he wakes up in a new predicament, and it seems like he's getting more and more, like further and further uh I don't know, messed up, I guess, <laughs> because the, the voice in his head seems to be more talking more and more as the issue goes on. Mm. And then at the very end, there's a wonderful splash page where he's looking into the sunset. But the page before that, he's fighting this guy and he he has this kind of a breakthrough where he punches the guy and he's, he just says, it's my life and I'll do what I like. And it's sort of like a breakthrough. Now we can move on to to, to explore the rest of, of uh, Matt kind of putting his life back together. It'll take a while to get there. Yeah, but now but now we know which but one you're is in right. control. We're, we're on the journey. Yeah, it's interesting. When he uh, when he screams out, it's my life, I was like, I, I was going to sing the Bon Jovi song. Oh, you of know? course, like, yep, absolutely. <laughs> it's now or never. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think everybody will uh, will probably... I know I did too. <laughs> now, so when we get to the next issue, which is part... You know, we're officially part of Marble Edge. It's, uh, you know, it's in the, uh, the the box on the on the cover now, Marble Edge, uh, September, uh, issue 344, and it's part of Over the Edge, which I would imagine is going to eventually be collected in a, in a Punisher collection. I would imagine so, yeah. Um, but we just got a, a bit of text just letting us know what happened in part one. And this is, was important for a while is that Punisher has been brain brainwashed and now he believes that Nick Fury murdered his family. This is going to actually have a big impact for a little while, at least um, in the kind of the shield area of the world um, and in the Punisher ongoing on its own. Um, so it's kind of interesting because I, I kind of always knew it happened because I remember reading the Punisher tie in to Onslaught and there was reference to this storyline, but I never really knew exactly how it kind of played out. So it was interesting to see Daredevil being involved. Daredevil and Punisher obviously have a very long history together. Um, so it's always interesting to see them tangled together, but this is really not a Daredevil issue at all. This is more of a, a, a weird crossover where Daredevil's not really as important to the main overall plot. That being said, the moments we do get with Daredevil are interesting because you have Dimitaeus really going into you know, Matt's mind and how it may or may not be fractured, how he's really dealing with a lot and maybe he's finally coming unglued. While at the same time, we have a parallel plot of, uh, you know, Punisher is most definitely unglued and trying to kill Nick Fury. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, it, yeah, you nailed it right on the head here. He Daredevil is used just as a vessel for Nick Fury to kind of talk to, really. And the only thing that Daredevil does of any consequence, other than fight the Punisher for a little bit, is let Nick Fury know that Scorpio hasn't been killed yet. He he's not quite mm-hmm. dead. So if you take care of him, really, like right now, you'll be able to save him, which they do. Uh, but yeah, it's there wasn't actually too much to this story, and I would really like to read this in context of the other three or four parts, or however many it is, to see if it it uh, it works a little bit better. But you know, it's fine. It leaves it us leaves I'm us curious on a nice cliffhanger. When, yeah, like when it, when it is, it's interesting too because yeah, it leaves us on the daredevil cliffhanger and kind of a cliffhanger to the over the edge storyline as well. Um, I'm curious when it eventually, hopefully, is collected in Punisher. Um, I'm hoping that I can maybe come on that episode with you and your co-host again, just to talk about, you know, Daredevil's, the Daredevil issue again, yeah. in context for the rest of the storyline, once I've actually had a chance to read it. Cause I think it's not a bad story for Punisher. It's interesting. Um, I, I, I want to, I want to see how it ends. The Daredevil part of this issue, less interesting, but it's like, huh, who's this guy in the red and yellow costume? And that's where we're going to go for the next little bit. Yeah. I'd be happy if you come on the the episode with the Punisher. That'd be that'd be a lot of fun. And I think this crosses over with the Hulk too, right? Mm-hmm. So we can get a which Hulk is such a weird, there. yeah, such a weird choice of connections. It is. It's very random, but you know, that's comic books. <laughs> what's actually what's very interesting is um, so I've I've actually started reading through the next volume, um, hoping that eventually you know now that it's fresh that uh, I'll be able to kind of follow things through. And it's interesting that the first. Uh, cover to the issue in the next collection would have been a good one for the prior volume um, because it had, well, maybe not thematically, but it has Daredevil in his red costume but holding his armored costume. And I'm like, that kind of would have been nice yeah. <laughs> to have him not in, because like the only shot of him in the yellow and red in the entire book we just read is in one page one, at the very end. Yeah, one and, panel. And, but that's the cover of the volume. It's so strange. I, I understand it. As you said, there aren't a lot of good choices to choose from, but it's just so strange. It is. It's very strange. Well, what this book did for me is it made me want to continue on to the next chapter because it's like this this is such an odd period of Daredevil where it was, uh, you know, uh, you have to kind of think of this as a continuous sweep from Frank Miller. Everything that had happened since Frank Miller kind of leads itself up to here and then it ends and mm. we're kind of getting now a reboot uh, of, of sorts. Kind of. And so I'm I'm eager to see where it goes, how they try to reinvent the character. I'm a big fan of Demetrius, and so I'm very anxious to to read his take on Daredevil for sure. So uh, yeah, I, I think uh, we should tackle the next volume sooner than later. Yeah, and no, I agree. It's you know it's it's one I don't remember a lot of, but it's you know it's it's interesting. And you know by the middle of the volume, we get back more to kind of more classic terrible stuff and it's it's going to feel so far away from everything we just read yeah um you know the, the first few issues are kind of you know trying to settle things and uh do a, you know kind of what Demetrius does with characters and then we get a nice kind of relaunch into a new status quo um and it's a, li- a lot lighter storytelling more fun um and more old school and it will kind of continue that way until the the volume eventually ends and gets rebooted as marvel knights yeah Okay, so there are some uh, bonus features here. We have several swimsuit pinup pages <laughs> featuring various. In case different... you weren't sure that you were just reading a '90s book, this yep. reminds you. Oh man, does it ever! Uh, and then also like a fake advertisement. We get some original artwork from Tom Greinberg and Keith Pollard, so that's cool to see those. 
and an afterword from Ralph mm-hmm. Macchio, where he talks about how great this period of Daredevil is, even though it isn't really that great. <laughs> well, it's interesting because he only ta- he only talks about the stuff before the Smithy stuff, yes, right? So yes, he's right. really just talking about Root of Evil itself, which again I think it has merit. Yeah. And then he doesn't really talk a lot about Humanity's Fathom. He very briefly kind of says, you know, things were topsy turvy here, but he doesn't really talk about it. So it's interesting how, what he decides to talk about. Most of what he's talking about is, again, Root of Evil, which I think is a, one of the better parts of the story, of this uh, collection. Yeah. Well, there we go. I think we have done this volume a good service and a little bit of it uh, a disservice because it's mixed. It's like quite a mixed bag. And people are. It is very mixed. I'm. Do you, do you agree with how people say this is the worst epic they've ever read? Um, I mean, I think it's a little harsh, but I get it. It's not the most enjoyable. And I'll be honest, like if I I read it for the show and I love Daredevil, but if I had to sit down and, and read this epic collection, if it hadn't been for the show, it would have been taking me a lot longer to get through and it would have felt more of a chore. Yeah. Um, you know, like I had to kind of push myself and like it was, some of it was interesting and sometimes I was engaged, but you know, it, it wasn't the most consistent at times. And I think overall, I think I probably enjoyed it more than I thought I would. Um, it's not, it's not the best, but I don't think it's the worst. Like, I don't think it's the worst epic collection. I'm sure there's something else that's been worse or more unreadable or more ridiculous. Um, I think it's partially that it, it wears the nineties on its sleeve like it, it and if you like the 90s great and if you don't you're gonna hate this more than anything <laughs> well yeah it doesn't it doesn't have the same sort of flashiness that a lot of the like if you think about 90s x-men even like mid 90s when it was around age of apocalypse and uh an onslaught things were pretty extreme there you could tell that they were putting their best talent on x-men and putting other talent on their other books uh, it just doesn't it doesn't compare the same way and I don't know why this one didn't it, it just didn't I don't know they never found their footing for a long time yeah no I don't know um, when we do get to the next volume it does I, I believe have one of the first Daredevil issues I ever read um, okay. so I'm excited to kind of see it in better context um, because at the time I don't think I had any context whatsoever I don't even know how I got the issue because <laughs> um, I, 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 I have no idea how it ended up in my hands but I always liked it um, but I'm excited to uh, to be able to uh, re-experience that, and have, again, as I said, better context for not just the character, but also the time period and the history of the character. Because when I first read it, I had none of that. Well, that kind of brings us to the end of our episode here. I think we uh, uh, we had a good conversation, and um, I'm looking forward to bringing you back uh, for Daredevil. Now we have a couple of other Spider-Man issues or volumes that we could do, but I think we should. I think we should carry on with Daredevil because we've done like eight episodes of Spider-Man, but only one episode. This will be the second Daredevil episode. So we should catch him up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so right? that, that shocked me, honestly, because I was thinking about it. I'm like, oh, man, what other Daredevils have we done? And I looked at my, my shelf. I'm like, none of them? None, yeah. <laughs> Just really. Paul from Grace? Like, how did this happen? Um, and and especially up. now that we have a very clear path to the end of the volume, right? Like, yep. mm-hmm. there's no reason why we couldn't just read the next two volumes and kind of finish off Daredevil and then eventually go back in time. And I know it's hard when you start with, like, volume ones because obviously they're so dense um, because the stories are just – there's just so much talking, so much narration. But it would be interesting to kind of go back because we have the first, what, three or four volumes already of, da- of Daredevil. So we have a good chunk if we ever want to go back. But, yeah, let's uh, we should finish off Daredevil and eventually come back to Spider-Man at some point. Well, and also the volume before Fall from Grace is coming out in a, in a few – like later on in, in this year. 
So we could loop oh, back so excited for that. to that as well. Like there's, or maybe we'll wait till that that other volume that bridges the gap between Nocenti and Chichester, and then we could do a straight run from Chichester to fall. I mean, from uh, Nocenti to Fall from Grace. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be great. Yep. Well, I mean, we're talking years down the road here, so <laughs> we like... we are. Yes, I. It's okay to be excited for years down the road. Yep, that's okay. Perfect. Okay. Well, if everybody wants to check out us on Facebook, we can. Uh, uh, you can search for uh, Epic Collections and join our Facebook group, or you can search for the Epic Marvel Podcast on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. Adam, why don't you plug your podcast? Oh, yeah, I have one of those. Uh, it's the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I actually have had a conversation with D.D. Chichester at some point in the past. I forget how long ago it's been. I feel like it's probably been three or four years, but that's uh, available in the archive as well. Um, and, yeah, we still have uh, weekly episodes. We have two episodes a week. We have one episode uh, taking a look at some of the current releases and then another episode. Sometimes I'll do flashbacks talking about old old collections. Uh, sometimes I have interviews. Uh, recent interviews have included um, actually one of my favorites has been uh, Ron Friends is uh, a big fan of sorry big friend of the show I was going to say fan but big friend of the show and uh, we had a, about a two and a half hour conversation back in December and where uh, we actually just had recently a, a two hour conversation just talking about his book A Next uh, from the late uh, 90s as part of the MC2 imprints and actually as we speak I'm about to record a second of, uh, uh, I guess a volume of that discussion uh, with Tom DeFalco as well looking at the uh, last six issues of that run so it took us two hours to go through six issues and that was just me and ron so we'll see what happens when it's me ron and tom talking about the the last six issues so that's some some of the stuff you can look forward to on the comic shenanigans podcast so awesome and adam i want you to do an a next episode for me here on the epic marvel podcast i actually i probably should i've talked so much about it recently that uh, i probably should (laughs) yeah you'll be the resident expert that's for sure okay (laughs) Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.